You know what the music means, Real Talkers. It means it's Friday. Welcome to the show on this May 28th. Ryan Jesperson here with you. Bit of a gong show out of the gates today. I had, I had, I had neatly set up all of my, all of my stuff, all my things, except for there's a, there's a bit of a disaster that nobody, quite frankly, cares about in front of me right now. Ironically, my organization efforts have created a bit of a problem. That'll teach me. <laughs> Back to normal next show on Monday morning. Back to usual chaos Monday morning. We're grateful you're here with us. We've got a, a, a good show, an excellent show I'm expecting, as a matter of fact. I don't know why I wanted to temper expectations there. I'm not sure if I wanted to add a whole lot of pressure on, but I think we've got a, a lineup today, including our roundtable, that would welcome that pressure and deliver. We're, we've, we've got an excellent Next, uh, we'll call it the next couple of hours. First, let me remind you that this show is presented every weekday morning by the team at Bitcoin. Well, it's kind of funny. The more and more people that tune into and subscribe to Real Talk, the more and more people approach me on the street like yesterday asking me about crypto. They go, well, your show, the title sponsor is like Bitcoin. Well, and I go, yeah, but the whole point is that I don't have the answers. Don't ask me for the answers. Don't ask me for the advice. I'm just letting you know when I have questions, they're the ones I trust and they're the ones that I talk to. They're the ones that have made sense for it for me. And and that's saying something because we keep it real here. They make sense when it's skyrocketing and they make sense when it's plummeting to the floor too. A lot of people right now are going, what the hell is going on? If you have questions, you know where to find Bitcoin well. They're always there for you under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Just got a message from somebody like 10 seconds ago on my personal phone. A message just arrived, just said, have a great show. How, how does that Sarah Hoyle, Sam Brooks, I, you know, I hope you both have a great show this morning. We're going to have a great show this morning. Somebody, you know what? Somebody taking two seconds to type that and send it. Wow. Right. I love that. I mean, just the little thought, the little just thanks. Hello. Thinking of you. I love those kinds of texts. We, we, I'm, I'm learning a lot from our, our little man, five years old, Wyatt. Uh, he's he's a very social kid. The, the pandemic has been uh, difficult on him and millions of other kids and, and millions of adults, of course, everyone in their own special way. But the one thing that that's really neat to see for him is whenever he's able to get outside or we were like walking the dogs or he's riding his bike or something like that. He's like catching up and making, he says hello to everybody. And he kind of looks back at me a little bit concerned if he says hello to somebody and that person ignores him or doesn't say hi back. It's like, Hey, yeah, they're not allowed to do that. The best part about it is cause he's five. He'll, yeah. he'll, he'll be like, hello. Or, or he'll say hello. And then they don't say anything. And then he goes, hello. And then they don't say anything. And then he looks back at me and he'll go like in the same volume. He'll go, Hey, dad, that person didn't say hello back to me. Do you find, I don't know, I mean, being on the show allows me to talk a little bit more. Uh, shocker. But um, the idea that during the pandemic, like sometimes when I would see somebody that I knew and I hadn't seen them in a while or seen anybody in a while, yeah. I'd be like, hi. And I would just like be a motor mouth and I'd be yeah. like, I'm so sorry. Oh, I don't yeah. know what's come over. Actually, I know exactly what's come over me. The pandemic. Yeah. The pandemic. <laughs> People are just going to like imagine the the chatterbox. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine what like the I think of the guys. I mean, yes, I understand they're fictional, but we can all relate, or many of us can relate to the characters and Cheers. Like, you know what I mean? 
the, who are you? The, Which one are you? Oh, who am I? Probably Cliff Clavin. Okay. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Or maybe I actually in theory, I think my norm is my spirit animal. <laughs> the guy that's just kind of. Eesh, I don't know if you should use that term, but anyways. Spirit animal, is that a tough one now? Is that a bad one now? It's real talk, real talk. Yeah. Really? It's, it's just considered like, well, the simplest way to put it is appropriation. Okay, but maybe what if I appropriate Christianity or something instead or some other manifestation Dave, of, of spirit? It, it's my, uh, you, you know, um, I would say growing up in the church, people, this is not mockery. This is yeah. just, I'm just saying uh, people talk about their spiritual gifts. Okay. And so maybe I could say something like Norm exhibits many of my social gifts. Spiritual gifts. My spiritual and social gifts. I think I'm Carla. uh, How did this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm Carla. I shouldn't do enthusiastic. (laughs) You're like, oh, yeah, you are. Oh, yeah, you are. (laughs) Who are you, Sam? I'm oh god I'm out of my element here because I I you were like have, you were yeah, four years I was old too young for Cheers oh, really loved Frasier but I was shame. too young for Cheers Sam is he Sam yeah I no mean, no no sorry Woody yeah but Woody's not his was was Woody was Woody Harrelson called Woody on the show wasn't he I don't know I, we, if we opened up our live chat right now I'm people sure are gonna people, be like what everyone's are you talking gonna have about a, everyone's gonna be Norm in the live or everyone's gonna be Cliff in the live chat today they're gonna have all the answers about everything I feel like I should be Sam Malone. The bar, the guy that's kind of, you know, he had like, he had like former, he had, he had a formerly prominent career, right? <laughs> Sam Maloney was a pitcher, wasn't he? He was a pitcher, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, he's a ball player of some sort. And then now he's got the, the bar, which arguably is his real calling, which I guess makes real talkers that are watching and listening to this, probably the people sitting around the bar at Cheers. That makes perfect sense. Doesn't that kind of all come real together? Real talk kind of is Cheers. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Uh, we're six minutes in. Sounds like we're stoned out of our minds. <laughs> <laughs> it is Friday, uh, and, and uh, we're going to have a lot of fun today. We're taking a look at some of the news headlines. Uh, we're taking a look at some of the stories that are making news across the country right now. Want to let you know in about uh, five minutes, we're going to check in with a, a physician. Uh, this guy, I, I can't wait to hear his story, a fascinating uh, story. Uh, uh, Dr. Akin is going to join us. Dr. Akin, us. Osaquaid, Osaquati. I, I, my apologies. I'm going to figure that one out. Um, he, he says that everyone calls him. You told Dr. me that. Akin. You told me that he only wants to be called Doctor Akin. And he says that what's every that's what everybody calls. I know, him. but I also like that. I, I also want to learn the name. You know what Fair I mean? Enough. So Fair I'll enough. ask him to, and then and then sure, Doctor Akin is fine. He's like. I was about to compare. You don't want to. I was going to say just like Dr. Phil, Dr. Akin's going to be like the difference being that I actually am a doctor. <laughs> I actually have training and help people. Um, I digress. He works as a family doctor. He's in the ER. He works with patients with complex medical needs, uh, brain injury patients. But here's the thing. He was schooled. He's got his medical degree um, out of Nigeria, where he was born and raised, and he would work in high school. Like So before graduating, before studying to become a doctor, et cetera, et cetera, practiced in England. I mean, he's done a ton of work in, in the UK, and now he's, we're lucky to have him here in Alberta. He worked uh, in campaigns in rural areas in Nigeria to help kids uh, get vaccinated in the context of polio. And so now he's doing a bunch of outreach in Alberta talking about vaccine hesitancy, specifically uh, with immigrant or new Canadian, like immigrant Canadians, new Canadians, um, visible minorities. We're going to get into the story. I'll get him to clarify. He approached us on this. He pitched this story. And I thought that's a really fascinating storyline. It's not one that would have been on my radar. 
Uh, that's kind of the whole point of a show like this and an audience like you is that stories get on our radar all the time because people you have a really good sense of stories that need to be told and what people are going to care about. Right. We've also been keeping an eye on my Twitter poll. The 24 hour period just wrapped up about 20 minutes ago. So we appreciate the uh, let me see. What is it here? The one thousand eight hundred and forty five of you that voted on our Twitter poll yesterday. How do you feel about Alberta's reopening plan? Uh, the final results are in uh, about 13 percent of you said it's about time. About 19 percent of you said you're torn and you left us comments, a whole bunch of comments, and we can get into those. And 68, 67.9, we'll call it 68% of you said that it's too soon. Hoyles, were you surprised? 68, that's a pretty high number, like almost 7 in 10? No. I mean, maybe for the context of the show, I should be like, I'm appalled or I'm no, shocked. No, no, no. What's your, I mean, did, would, you, would you have forecast, if we were going to ask you where you thought that was going to go, would you say 68% are going to think it's too soon? I mean, I thought I would think that it might actually be higher than that. Really? Um, but I think the torn, I'm torn, uh, kind of fits within that um, saying like, oh, it is too soon, but <laughs> or that. So but I mean, m- maybe those people are now yelling at their or their computers or at their iPod. At their <laughs> I don't think I don't think that there's necessarily one right answer. Mm. Uh, that's like the safest thing I'll say all day because there's not one right answer. And everyone's going to feel differently, right? I mean, I said, how do you feel about Alberta's reopening plan? In theory, that's a different question Mm. than how do you feel, for example, about the premier invoking the Calgary Stampede so prominently in the reopening plan? Right. Because if you look at a lot of the comments on the poll, a lot of people will say, for example, um, you know, let me read like DK. I I just picked DK's uh, uh, at random here. Um, I definitely feel it's too soon, says DK, but I'm excited to have the opportunity to visit with family in Calgary without feeling like a rule breaker. I'm not going to stampede, but I'll certainly see friends and family who've also taken this seriously as well. Meantime, Megan, with one of my favorite responses, um, Sam, let's put this up for the folks that are watching on TV because it invokes one of my favorite gifts of all time of Vince Vaughn at Wedding Crashers. Uh, And Megan says, I cannot wait to get my first COVID vaccine at the rodeo vaccination tent. After that, I'm hitting up the maskless patio. (laughs) So Megan is in the running for response of the day on the poll which i appreciate but the point is you notice comment after comment after comment all have to do with the stampede and alberta's reopening plan really in theory just to throw it out there should have very little to do with the stampede the stampede is like one thing uh in a province of four and a half million people and there are thousands of implications of the reopening right correct so how do you feel about the reopening is a bit of a different question. I think a lot of people I'm not I'm not sure, but I feel like a lot of people may have been answering like, you know, did all the yeehaw griddle rental business stampede best summer ever narrative kind of turn you off a little bit. And I think a lot of people are probably voting yes to that. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because I think if you talk to people on the street, I'm not sure I'm speculating here. I'm going to ask Dr. Akin on this in just a second. What what his take is. Um, I bet you that I'm just I don't totally 100 percent buy it, to be honest with you. And we present these polls as unscientific and unofficial because they're done on Twitter. Like, you know, somebody that, that, you know, can't stand me or can't stand this show would simply say like Jesperson and his audience. Of course, you know, they're they're they're, you know, the polls are going to skew a certain way. You know, we hashtagged 
Alberta legislature. We hashtag some things. It's going to put it in front of a lot of people. But I do find it a little hard to believe that only 13% of people that only 13% of people think it's about time that we reopen. I think that number's too low. I don't think that if you were walking, you know, down the street or if you're at the dog park, I really don't think that only one in nine people, you know, or something, whatever the math is. Oh my gosh, here I go. Why did I even do this <laughs> to myself? Why did you do that to Why yourself? Why did I do it to myself? We'll call it one in eight, right? Okay. Right? Because eight times 13 would be 104. So, see? Showing off there. I... I <laughs> So hope I'm right on that math. I really hope I'm right on that math. There's a slow clap from over there. But I don't. But I think more than one in eight people would be excited that that the province is going to kind of reopen. Sam has literally a calculator. His, did I get it right? Is eight times 13, 104? Oh, yeah, you were right. Yeah, I was right. Okay, that's yeah, all I, I was cared. just pulling out the calculator in case you needed it. Just showing me. Well, we've got the CP style book. We've got the calendars. We've got the two. This is it actually becomes quite intimidating as somebody that just runs his mouth for a living. <laughs> The more fact checkers in the room. I mean, it, yeah, sure. It gives the audience confidence, but, you know, it's, it's more intimidating for me. And we should all worry about me. Let's get to this. In all seriousness, we know what the three phase reopen looks like in the province of Alberta. We've taken a look at what BC is doing. Our friends that tune in and join us from other parts of Canada have all been sending us messages and feedback on what they believe an intuitive reopen to look like it's based essentially not entirely but essentially on two factors hospitalizations and vaccinations our first guest this morning has worked as a family doctor he's working as an er doc also in long-term facilities looking after folks with complex medical needs brain injury survivors he's currently working in didsbury alberta originally from nigeria he's done schooling in england in the uk and we're lucky to have him here on real talk as an audience member and a new friend of the show uh dr akin i i i plead with you i know that you want to keep it casual i know you want me to call you akin but how do i pronounce your last name just so i do it justice i think i, I really my have my last name is yes my last name is pronounced as osakwade osakwade got it spot on spot on okay but people tell call me dr aiken they say you know i tell patients the easiest way to remember they said they're aching to see me oh okay well there you have it well my friend we're, yep, so we're if you're aching you come see dr aiken there you go i mean I, this needs to go up on a billboard i i hope that your er doesn't get slammed right now for multiple reasons <laughs> but i'll tell you that it, oh, yeah. i think you're already endearing yourself to this audience looking at the smile on your face oh, yeah. d- despite the fact yeah. that it's been such a difficult let's call it approximately a year and a half coming up on a year and a half anyway oh, yeah. for frontline oh, yeah. healthcare professionals uh in 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 alberta and canada and of course around the world what's the last year and, and a bit looked like for you it's it's been exhausting now ryan uh, it's for myself for the nurses all the healthcare workers they're doing a phenomenal job you know everybody's pulling in double shifts doing extra hours we're doing everything possible to keep our, our population safe to keep our patients safe and it's you know we, we are part of this community we, we love this community we want to make sure that we save as many lives as possible and that we keep our community safe. We want babies to live. We want adults to live. We care about all the whole spectrum of our, of our community. So it's been exhausting. 
Um, and but the beautiful thing now is that we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. So so it's almost like you're doing that last last mile of a marathon, and the lactic acid is building up in your legs and all that, and you're trying to take that air in to just keep pushing forward, knowing that you know you're just about to cut that ribbon and come to the end of this uh, this entire episode. To to build on your metaphor, though, I mean, it feels like there's been times where earlier this year people might have said we feel like you know we're in we're in the last k of the 5k or, or we're in the you know the last mile of the half marathon and and then all of a sudden things start to go sideways and then the race officials tell them that they've got 13 more miles to run it's it's been oh, tough yeah. to know where the end is oh yeah i i, I completely agree with that. it's like that moving goalposts they keep moving that goes like you're coming to the end you're coming to the end and then all of a sudden they put a bit extra yeah, but I think the beautiful thing is that I think I, I have to credit Albertans. They've done a phenomenal job. People have people are actually listening to the doctors. They're listening to, you know, public health officials. They are trying their very best to follow advice. You've got a small amount that are not, but the majority of people have sacrificed holidays, sacrificed loved ones. I have patients that are come to me sobbing that they can't hug their grandkids. And it's been a very difficult, challenging period, but everybody's made those sacrifices to try and keep their loved ones and their community safe. And I think, you know, Albertans deserve all the credit for doing a great job, even with this, despite the uh, the challenging circumstances we find ourselves. Uh, doctor, for, you know, people that are going to be listening to this uh, podcast from, from in other parts of the country or or outside Canada may not quite be familiar with the community of Didsbury. It's a great community. Yeah. I grew up going to summer yeah. camp, basketball camp in nearby Olds. I, I'm sure there's a healthy rivalry between those two communities. Just south, oh, yeah. of, just oh, south yeah. of Red oh, Deer, yeah. about halfway between Calgary and Edmonton. Now, we've had a lot of talk about rural versus urban, uh, you know, Albertans and Canadians and how they've approached things like public health orders and mask orders. And, and we've heard from a lot of rural folks that have said life's a little bit different out here. It's just we've got more room. The culture is a little bit different. Um, and I've wondered aloud on the show in some circumstances if rural Canadians have been getting a bit of a bad rap as well from some pretty high profile incidents that, that haven't involved everybody, but they have occurred in some cases in rural communities. What have you observed with regards to any difference that you might perceive uh, between how rural or urban Albertans have approached this? I mean, I think, I mean, I, my, when I first worked in, in Alberta, I worked in a small remote town of Oyen, phenomenal mm-hmm. town, wonderful people. And then I moved to Didsbury, another rural town. And I also cover uh, small rural towns like in Stetler and in Clarezol. And rural people are really passionate about community. They're passionate about looking after each other. And I think it's not much of a, I, I, I know people try to talk about the rural versus uh, ur- urban divide, but fundamentally these people are Albertans are known for hard work, for dedication, for community, for family. And and I think they've had, you know, the major problem though is that with, with the nature of the virus, when you have that particular virus coming into a close-knit community where people like to get together, it spreads very, very quickly. This is a virus that likes to take advantage of, our, of us wanting to love each other, being close to each other, being, being able to support each other, and it exploits that to spread. You know, so things like funerals, weddings, if you give it an opportunity to spread, it will spread. So I think it's the rural people, you know, people in rural Alberta are just as, they just are interested in following the rules. The major challenge oftentimes is, it's easy for misinformation. It's also like a virus. It spreads very quickly in rural towns if you don't clamp down on it. And this virus as well 
tries to exploit our wanting to, to, to support one another and be with one another. And it's, it's, that's one of the sad things. But with regards to the divide between rural and urban, I don't think there's much of a divide. I think it's more of the way the virus spreads very quickly, especially if you're in a close community. Doctor, what you you do uh, some work, and I'm, not, I'm sure maybe the extent of it you can clarify. My understanding is that you you have several elderly patients. You do uh, work or yes. consults in long term care centers, etc. Um, as yes. we look back on this pandemic uh, in, in years to come, we will certainly examine uh, more about long term care centers and, and how the elderly have been impacted by this. What have you seen firsthand? I mean, I think the first the first wave, first couple of waves was horrible. It was uh, the uh, one of the worst experiences to get can get go through. Uh, those long term care patients were uh, were were dying. Um, if you once the COVID gets into a long term care facility, ev- every day you're praying that you don't get another call that a patient was going to die. And the once the virus gets in, it spreads very quickly. The long term care facilities I worked in in in, in Calgary area and in in in, in Didsbury, the, the staff did everything possible with regards to you know making sure they wear their PPE, making sure they tried the social distances, social distancing and all that. But the challenge is this virus likes to spread. And, you know, and I think the, the, with the difference with the, the first, sec, first and second wave was we didn't have a vaccine. So because of that, we were in trouble. This thing would just spread and it will cause havoc and it would kill. That's what it's there for. Um, but thankfully, with the third wave, most of our patients have been vaccinated. So it's been a happy story, the third wave for a lot of long term care centers have worked in. So, so you know, the, the, the staff are actually very happy now because most of our patients are vaccinated. The last this last wave, some of the centers I've worked in, even when they do have a COVID outbreak, the patients are fine. Mm. So they've had their vaccination, even after one dose. That is the good news about the phenomenal news about the story now. Even after one dose, some of the quite a lot of patients, when they do get it, they're sick for like a day or two and they will survive. Mm. So actually, my anxiety about the long-term care centers now has reduced significantly because I know they've been vaccinated and the vaccines are extremely effective. Now, I know that, you know, it strikes me in, in when you first reached out to us, which, by the way, I really appreciate you. You talked about a, a great level of concern that you have around, as you put it, ethnic communities, visible minorities in Canada. Can you take us into this? I mean, my yes. Part of my concern is I wanted to let the, everybody know the good news about the vaccines, that the vaccines are very effective. COVID is no play. COVID is no joke. This is not a drill. This virus is here to kill. It's here to maim. It's here to destroy. So we need to protect one another. And one of the, uh, you know, I, I, I look after patients from all backgrounds and, and I kept seeing and kept hearing from people from black, Asian, minority, ethnic, ethnic groups, and they're, they're reluctant to get the vaccines. And partly part of the reluctance was they give me the same, same thing that I hear from a lot of people, which is, oh, is it being tested? Is it safe? Is it effective? And my answer to that is, yes, it is safe. It is effective. It works. It's all good news. You, you can get this vaccine, two doses of your vaccine, and within two weeks after that, you're practically immune to this virus. You don't need to die from this virus. You don't have to lose work from, from not, you know, from, from falling sick from this virus. It is extremely effective and that we need to rally up both, the, you know, all, all our burdens, especially the ethnic group. The reason, part of the reason I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about Black, Asian, minority ethnic groups is they are four, two to four times more likely to die from this virus. So they are at risk population. And then if you couple that with, you know, you know 
so many other things. They've got poor access to vaccination, sometimes because of the nature of their work, poor access, the barriers to getting that, and also the misinformation. So like I said, this virus likes close-knit communities because when you have uh, misinformation coupled with poor access to, to vaccines, that is where the environment it likes to, to spread. And I'm not having it. I want every every Albertan out there to go get their vaccine. I want my brothers and sisters, you know, go get it, get your vaccines. Make sure you keep yourself safe. Make sure you keep your community safe. This is a time when we can do our part to look after ourselves, look after our community. And we can, if we do our part, we're not only going to have, I suspect we're going to have a good summer, but an even great Christmas. We didn't have a great Christmas last year. This year, we don't, we should have a great Christmas. We should all get vaccinated and be safe. You, uh, I mean, your your high school experience, it sounds to me like in your in your uh, home country of Nigeria, it sounds to me like you may have known that that public service by way of healthcare was your calling. I mean, you were already working on polio vaccination campaigns in high school. What did you learn throughout that that process, that experience? Well, the, the, that experience taught me the power of vaccination. Uh, and and I'll, I'll give you another story. So when I was in high school, like, there was a they usually have like polio days where the nurses would go and they would vaccinate uh, people. And I I, I volunteered because I, I love public service. I love healthcare. Anything to get people to do well physically, mentally. I'm happy with it. I'm happy. I'm excited with. It. And I would go with this, you know, the district nurses there, and we'll go to rural communities, and I'd see people who walked long distances to get their kids vaccinated. And the reason why is because they know these diseases. You don't play with it. You don't play with polio. You don't play with measles. You don't play with TB. Humanity has always been plagued with diseases that want to cause us significant harm. And it is in our, you know. And those nurses would go. And I would see those families and those moms, they would bring their kids with joy in their face. Every time they get that drop of that polio vaccine in their mouth, they know that that child is going to be protected. That is a child that's going to be able to walk, that's able to meet their full potential. And that is the beauty and the joy of vaccination. Vaccinations keep us healthy, keep us safe, so that we can live our full potential. And that is why the same thing I want us to be able to to, to hold on to. You know, when, when when it's time to get our shot here in Alberta, don't miss your shot. Go get your shot. This is our time to do our part to keep ourselves healthy, keep our community healthy and keep Alberta strong. Uh, <clears throat> I'd like you to know, Doc, that Mark is watching now live and Mark's let us know that 54 weeks ago today, you gave him a clot buster injection and saved his life from a widowmaker heart attack in his hometown of Didsbury. Mark's watching this morning, 54 weeks later, because you saved his life. Hello, Mark. <laughs> it's a pleasure. I love working in rural Alberta. It's This is the place to be. So if you're a doctor wanting to practice medicine, the place you want to be is rural Alberta. Rural Alberta is like Mark. They are fantastic and they are worth it. They keep us. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Thanks well, let, for that. let me ask you something. And I apologize in advance, by the way, Doc, because I think you're I mean, you know, you're going to get slammed in Didsbury because a whole bunch of people are asking if you can just be everybody's family doctor in our live chat right now. So I don't know if your life's about to get a little bit more hectic. But uh, but what you know, rural medicine, in all seriousness, when it when it comes to retention, 
education, when it comes to recruitment, it's one thing to offer a doctor an opportunity to practice in, you know, in suburban Calgary where they can raise their family and have a golf membership and have just a, a wonderful, fabulous and very comfortable life in a sexy metropolitan center of a million people with the best restaurants and a decent hockey team. But uh, Doc, you're out there in Didsbury slugging it out every day. Now, people could sing the praises of rural Alberta, quite rightfully so, and the wonders of living in rural communities. But recruiting and, and retaining doctors is a little bit more complex. Um, what drew you to the opportunity and what's keeping you there? I mean, I, I love rural medicine. And I think the major the thing is that the rural patients are absolutely wonderful. You know, when I, I worked my first three years in Alberta in Owen, and then I moved to Didsbury, they love doctors there. They care. You know, the thing is that one of the best things about being a doc is you look after people, you look after the whole spectrum, and people appreciate the work you do. I, I work with a phenomenal team of nurses. The nurses in rural, I, I've never worked in any, any Calgary major hospital, but the nurses in rural Alberta are absolutely wonderful. They make my life easy. They, they do a lot of the work. And, you know, it's a team structure. The, the nurses are fantastic. The hospital administrators are wonderful. The patients are wonderful. You get to, to practice actual medicine, make a difference, save people's lives, and they thank you for it and they appreciate it. It's not about the money. It's not about uh, actually being a doctor. It's actually being able to be a part of a, that service that provides healthcare for people in rural community, keeps people happy, keeps people healthy. So they don't have to travel to the big cities to get healthcare. They can get healthcare in the rural communities and they can stay with their loved ones and they can live a happy long life. And I wouldn't exchange it for anything else. It's one of the one of the things I, I, I find it exciting every single day when I'm going to work because I know my patients value it. The nurses are there to support me. I have my doctor colleagues to work with me. It's just a phenomenal experience. And I would definitely recommend if anybody wanted to be a doctor or any doctor wanted to come to Alberta, come rural. Hmm. Lisa says, you know, this is a part of this conversation we're having speaks directly to privilege. She says, you know, people are so privileged to be able to turn down vaccinations. Uh, Marie says, just think about the smallpox vaccine and what it did for this planet. Deborah's wondering if we can just circle back on your experience in Nigeria and your, your, your public health work there and advocacy. If you do see some parallels with with polio and covid, uh, any specific or particular ones? I mean, it's a, so when I was I was uh, was in medical school in the in the nineties, and even in high school when I was helping the district nurses, I heard the same misinformation that the the same information they spread was that polio was causing infertility, and I was like, I, I and even then as a student, I was like, why would somebody spread some something like that? Nigeria has a fertility rate of five point five, so the average woman has anything between five to six kids, so it, and majority of people had polio vaccine, so you mean so you mean they're going to be having twelve kids? So the, the and, and the, the major challenge was that the, the problem with those lies and misinformation is there's I believe about five to ten percent of our population, when they get misinformed, they get emotionally attached to it. And then it becomes difficult to shake it away. And in, in Nigeria, the only way we're able to finally be able to kick polio out of Nigeria was when we looked at we looked specifically at people uh, who were like the uh, that, that could influence people like you know the leaders the, the the especially pastors the imams the religious leaders and until they were able to to come on board 
before that was that was a major thing that made us able to finally kick polio out of of of, of Nigeria. And what I learned from that experience is that people in places of trust are critical. You know, so so pastors, imams, family doctors, politicians, everybody has to be on board so that we can stamp down misinformation and get our people the right information they need so they can make the best decisions for themselves, which is to get vaccinated so they can protect themselves and their families. Uh, Doc, I got to be respectful of your time as well. We've got a roundtable locked and loaded, ready to go, too. But le- let me just ask you, I mean, um, you know, people, some people right now, I mean, including on our live chat are saying, hey, we've heard we've heard nightmare stories about the vaccine. You know, one one yes. viewer is saying, you know, a friend had to have part of their intestine removed after getting the vaccine. I can tell you personally, a personal friend of mine um, had a horrific scenario with their family. And now it may be one in a million or it may be one in five million or 10 million. Yes. But the fact of the matter is, I, I know that person's name and it happened to them um, and they're no longer yes. with us. And so I, I am here as an advocate of vaccines. I posted my photo when I got my vaccine. I encourage everybody I know to get the vaccine. But I also find and I've said this on the show a couple of days ago, uh, I find it very difficult and almost irresponsible and, and certainly insensitive to just dismiss people's hesitations. Like, I'm not talking about people that think that, you know, chemtrails are the government's way of doing it. I'm not talking about that. I have no problem dismissing that. But people that say, I, I just I just don't know. I heard a story about, you know, John, my friend in Manitoba that got it and had a blood clot. And I just don't know. And I recognize that the easy and simple answer is that statistically, you're way more likely to be in trouble with COVID than you are with the vaccine. That's the short answer. But what would you say to someone in that position? And I think, Narayan, you're absolutely spot on. And I, I think statistic is one thing, but we're a narrative species. We like to listen to stories. So I tell them I've had my vaccine. I had a sore arm for an hour. I had nausea the second dose, and that was pretty much it. Mm. I tell them that, yes, they, they, there's been some incidences with certain vaccine, especially the AstraZeneca. That was, and that was a very rare, very extremely rare occasion. I think, I believe it's like one in 200,000 thereabout. But yes, that is one life that's been impacted. But then I tell them, look at the numbers. Look at the big picture. The big picture is the fact that you have a country like the United States of America, 133 million people had have had the vaccine. Out of the 133 million people that had a vaccine, 10,000 had COVID after that, and 300, 350,000, uh, 350 of that, uh, 133 million died from COVID. Versus without the vaccine, you had 33 million people catching COVID and over 600,000 people dying. So yes, people always, I always, I tell them, I say, look, I get you, I understand you. Even everybody, everybody's afraid. When I went to get my first vaccine, I look at the data, I look at the science, the science was clear. I said, if the science is clear, that is good enough for me. I look at the pros and cons, and I, and I think that's everybody should weigh that. What are the pros and cons? The pros is the fact that if you get COVID, if you've had the vaccine, you will, you're more likely to live. If you don't, have the vaccine, you're likely to suffer harm and potentially die. And the major challenge to me as an individual, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm afraid of disability. I'm afraid of not being able to breathe and having an existence where I'm only living 50% of my potential. And that's what vaccine does. It protects us, not not just one individual, but the entire population is protected. Yes, we'll have uh, a small minority of people that might have uh, my side side effects, particularly the only one, the Pfizer Moderna have not been shown to have any significant side effects. And that's perhaps why in Canada now, the only vaccines being offered in Canada, the Pfizer and 
vaccine. So essentially, in 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 in, in you know, some of the other vaccines are are not great. They are absolutely fantastic. But the government in Alberta here in in Canada has secured the Pfizer Moderna vaccines, the one not associated with blood clots, the ones that are as they've found to be safest based on population and looking at all the side effects. Which is why I said even if more more it gives us more confidence to go get those vaccines. And and I, and I hear what you say. I say look, I, I listen to people. I want to understand their fears. I want to genuinely listen to what 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 makes them upset about it. But more importantly, what I what I want to do is to focus on let's look at the picture let's look at how to protect our population protect our families protect our loved ones so that we can go back to hugging our grandkids our children our friends our families get our business back on track and keep Alberta strong love it dr aiken osakwale we're so lucky to have you practicing medicine here uh we really appreciate your availability on the show i'm just stoked that you're an audience member that's what i'm most excited about i love that you reached out can't wait to talk to you again you're obviously in high demand take the call we'll talk to you soon doc thank you so yeah. much thank you you got thank it thank you what a beauty <laughs> dr aiken osaquati i'm gonna i'm driving to didsbury now my family i'm one I, my family doctor left my family doc's one of those that packed up and left this this year so uh i've been looking for one and I, i'm only half kidding about driving to didsbury to see that guy yeah People are writing. You should see our live chat right now. You see our live chat right now. I don't remember who it was. My apologies. But someone wrote in and said, said uh, that was why the provincial government got bit in the ass a little bit when they when they picked fights with doctors. They said us rural folk are fiercely protective of our doctors. You know, special relationships that how that that's mind blowing from Mark. Mark, 54 weeks ago today, that yep. doctor, our guest saved his life. Boom, from a what he calls it a widow maker heart attack. What's my, my assumption is that that's just one that sneaks up on you and whammo one that would knock you out. Is that what that is? I'm assuming I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Yeah, I want I want to know more. I'll tell you this. Anything called the widow maker, whether it's off roading or snowboarding yeah. or what anything called the widow maker is typically, you know, you t- you, you heed the advice. Yeah, let's you try just to say. avoid that. Yeah. Well, we have the ear of our rural audience. Let me remind you that we are three days away, three days away right now from the Canadian Rural and Remote House. Housing and Homelessness Symposium, the Rural Development Network and the Rural Ontario Institute are really excited to welcome you to this national conference. It's coming up on June 1st. That's Tuesday, Tuesday, right? Yeah, June 1st is Tuesday. Expect a unique program with more than 30 workshops and panel sessions, renowned keynote speakers like uh, Indigenous activist Jesse Thistle and uh, AHMA's Executive Director Margaret Foe, who's going to speak. You can connect virtually, obviously, with other rural communities and hit the ground running with fresh ideas to take home to your neck of the woods real talk audience members get an exclusive 20 percent off the cost of registration when you use the promo code ryan the promo code ryan will get you 20 percent off get your tickets today at c that's C-R-R-H-H.ca. A shout out to the team at Friesen Brothers. They know that you're getting ready for the weekend and that may include plans to grill, whether it's veggies, sourdough bread. Can you grill tofu? You can probably grill it, right? Absolutely. You can, you can bake it. You can pan fry it. You can. You just want to make sure you get the firm stuff. 
not the because you can get firm, medium, firm, soft. Why would you want? What would soft tofu be like? Spreadable? It's not not spreadable. It's just more like kind of people use it for desserts and stuff. Ah, right. Um, so it's it's literally more kind of like. Um, pudding, as opposed to the firm stuff. Which but is, you could you could take your favorite like like uh, seasoning, like a dry rub, yeah, or like even like a just a one of those barbecue sauces that just drip. marinate it, yeah. Okay, plus Alberta beef, pork, chicken, turkey, and everything else you've come to expect from Friesen Brothers. They've been proudly Alberta grown and Alberta owned for more than sixty five years. A reminder: Have you have you two have you guys seen the uh, the forecast for our neck of the woods? I recognize that it's not. But we like to brag because you know all of our friends that tune in from they're super annoying places like Kelowna and Salt Lake City and San Diego and Phoenix and and, and you know uh, Costa Rica. They send us these photos, these videos. You know, it's it's thirty degrees. You know, for Americans, it's like 90. you got to rub it in our faces. Next week in our neck of the woods, it's going to be unreal. What I'm getting at is it's, it's perfect peanut buster parfait weather, especially this weekend, because the exclusive $1.99 price point at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, that expires at the end of May. That's on Sunday, all right? We're talking about that fabulous soft serve ice cream, right? And the rich hot fudge, plus the peanuts, that trademark Dairy Queen swirl in the Red Spoon. We're talking about the Dairy Queens at Baseline Road, Y Gardens, Westmount, Newcastle, Nemeo, and Palisades. And our thanks to them. A couple of weeks ago, it's hard to believe it was already a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago, yesterday, as a matter of fact, we we, we uh, rolled out a, a special themed show that for the most part, aside from a little poly talk at the beginning, talked a bit of politics at the beginning. But for the most part, it was a show on the ethics of eating. We were talking about hunting. We were talking about traditions. We were talking about uh, humane slaughter, if you want to call it that. We were talking about how people procure their food and consumer education and Two separate roundtables. If you missed it, just go back to to Thursday. It was the 13th, I think, was it of May, Sarah? Bing, bang, bong. Thursday, May 13th. Look at me adding, subtracting, multiplying today. It's really, is there anything this guy can't do? And uh, so two weeks ago, if you want to look back on either our podcast archive or our YouTube channel, really worthwhile, uh, different conversations, different dynamics in the conversations, too. The first one was a little more conciliatory. The second one was a little more uh, headbutt-ish, but but all, of course, respectful and, and some great conversations through it all. The producer of this show, Sarah Hoyles, had a plan to dedicate an entirely different segment specifically to indigenous traditions. We didn't want to try to fit it into a conversation that also included so many other subjects. And we're thrilled right now to follow up and to continue our conversation on ethics and traditions and sustainability with three people who practice what they preach, who live, who walk the walk, so to speak. I'm very excited uh, to welcome to the program. Uh, uh, the Edmonton Public Library's elder in residence, Joanne Saddleback, uh, a Métis educator, writer, and harvester, Connor Kerr, and a Governor General award-winning writer. He's author of On the Trap Line, David A. Robertson. To the three of you, welcome to Real Talk, and, and thank you so much for being here. I, I want to get a sense to, to understand where each of you is coming from, generally speaking, on this subject matter, and then we'll dig in more into specifics. I want to encourage you to interact with one another. You don't have to wait for me to ask you a question. Uh, David, tell us about On the Trap Line. How did this come about? I know a lot of people are really excited about this project. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, it's uh, my second picture book, um, and it's uh, just about a grandfather taking his grandson out onto um, his ancestral land um, where he grew up as a child. 
Um, and it's a place where he hadn't been for several decades. And the first time that the child has ever been out on the land with his with with anybody. And so the grandfather just uh, teaches the grandchild first about the community that they're visiting, which is his home community, and then um, life on the land. And um, it's really, you know, it's heavily influenced by my my father's life, um, who grew up on the trap line for the first nine, 10 years of his life, and um, who asked me to take him out uh, onto his trap line for one, uh, one last time uh, just a couple of years ago. And, and he taught me the same things that um, the grandfather taught this uh, grands, grandson in the book. And so I just, you know, I made myself a kid, but it was really this transformative experience for my father and I um, just to kind of be out uh, on a place that felt like home to me. And that was home to my dad and, um, and all the things that he taught me about being there and, and the life that he, he led. Uh, it was a really beautiful experience, and it helped me to understand a lot more about the way that he grew up and 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 the and the beauty of uh, living uh, by swift waters and and on Mother Earth. I'm I'm certainly going to get to our other two panelists, but I have to follow up. And it, would would you would you take us along through through your your memoir, so to speak, uh, that 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 trip on the trap line with a person so formative and, and so important in your life? That one last time, I would imagine the tone of it was maybe a little bit different than previous trips. Would you take us along? Yeah, um, it was this. You know, I think that I one of the things that I noticed was that it, how life giving it was. You know, my dad at that point was. Um, he, he died just about a year after this trip and, um, he, he was getting frail. He was getting a little weaker, uh, losing his balance. And, um, when we got into the boat on, on the Nelson river, um, he just looked 10 years younger instantly. It was just amazing to see him, um, just, it is almost like the, the land and the water was feeding him. Um, and, uh, it was, it was something that, um, you know, it really made me uh, understand um, the just the energy in life that the land gives you. And, um, you know, we, we spent the day out there. Uh, he showed me, um, you know, where he used to walk and, and snare as a child. Um, the, uh, the chores that he did um, and the, the places where he gathered, for example, spruce bows and, and put them on the ground for them to sleep on. Um, but more than anything else, it was just this, you know, I called it blood memory in, in, in my memoir called Blackwater. This is like kind of like a kid's version of Blackwater. And um, it's, it's uh, this, this kind of feeling of home that's woven into the fabric of your DNA. So, you know, I had never been there before, but um, I felt like, you know, um, I felt like I had. I felt like I had lived there. And, uh, and I still consider it a home to me. Uh, I took my I took my kids out there the next year and uh, I was able to teach them what my dad taught me. And, um, you know, that sort of intergenerational connection is uh, is really poignant, really powerful. And um, it, it helped us to heal as a family. And I know my dad was really happy to, to know that we went out there, even though at the time he wasn't well enough to go. Beautiful. Joanne, you're a, a member of the a Satellite Cree Nation. Uh, your husband uh, from the Samson Cree Nation. When, when we uh, prepare for a conversation about uh, tradition and ceremony and, uh, you know, uh, family history and, and all of these things around food, uh, around sustenance, um, I suppose in different First Nations communities, uh, it's going to mean different things, right? We may be talking about trapping. We may be talking about different types of, of hunting or, or foraging. We may be talking about fishing. We, we, we talk about what does it mean to you? 
All our old people say, and good morning, first of all, to all you good people there. And uh, our old people say that it doesn't matter what topic you're talking about. If you're talking about First Nations people, you're talking about culture, period. And, and to first begin to understand how we look at food, you have to have some kind of understanding about culture. So culture isn't a product. Culture is the process. Uh, married to that culture is, is protocol whether it's protocol to an elder, whether it's protocol to a knowledge keeper, whether it's protocol to that, that animal spirit, you know, that, that's your, that you're, you're hunting or the food that you're foraging. You would honor always that, that food, you have a relationship because we have a different understanding of what food and what animals are. We come from a clan system and we believe that everything is alive and that all of the food are the kindness and compassion that deities have brought to the earth so that it could sustain um, people. So we have that kind of deep relationship with the food and with the animals and with the, with the earth itself. So when you're talking about sustaining something like that, you know, I always tell people, you know, when explorers came over here, they wrote in their journals how they had found paradise and you would not begin to understand the sophistication of philosophy and technology that it takes to sustain paradise. And that's what we, we contributed to, to, the, to the world. We maintained paradise. So it takes a lot of work. You have to have a full knowledge of the earth and how it works. You have to have a full knowledge of the, the animals on it and the plants growing here. So you have that kind of relationship. It's a very deep, sacred you know, knowledge that you're talking about. You know, even to take up, even to butcher an animal, you know, it, it's, it's, it's seeped in ceremony, you know, and there's certain animals for certain ceremonies that, that you would use, you know, so there's, there's this whole system, you know, in the way that it works, you know, for us to be able to, to have food, to sustain it and to, to work with the land to, to make sure that it's always preserved. Joanne, what's your, what's your earliest memory in this context, I mean, did you, was this was this essentially, you know, from three, four, five years old type thing? Yes, yeah, actually, it is. Uh, I have a, a father who had four daughters, and he used to take us out hunting with him. And I remember being the we were the ones who had to run and get the ducks. We had to be the ones to go and get the rabbit. But it was, but when we came home, and you know, with my mother, and we were we were skinning these animals when we were you know, taking them apart, readying, readying them for a meal. It was always um, seat in that, in that ceremony, in that tradition. And, you know, they were sustaining, you know, their family with food. And, and it was always a, a grand event, you know, when, when this happened. You know, so I, yeah, it's a very early memory. <laughs> mm. uh, Connor, uh, you're a member of, of the Métis Nation of Alberta, uh, descended uh, from uh, the Lac St. Anne and Fort de Prairie Métis communities, the Papas Chase Cree Nation. Uh, in the context of, of, of what we're talking about, the history and the traditions, uh, sustainability of food, sustenance, community, You've written some pretty powerful stuff on this, and I want to ask you about a piece that you wrote, published at yellowheadinstitute.org about violence, racism, and resistance. Serious business, and it's a story that a lot of people are going to remember in just a moment. But to get started here, with regards to, to, to formative experiences of your youth, uh, in your own personal life, when we talk about traditions around hunting or food, community, what does that mean to you individually? 
thanks, Ryan. And uh, I just want to say it's an honor to be here with uh, Joanne and uh, David as well. Um, Joanne, I've been tuning into your uh, sessions at the library lately on uh, colors and protocol and tobacco, and they're just fascinating. And I'm learning so much. So thank you so much. Um, for me personally, I, uh, I spent a lot of time with my uh, grandmother and my grandfather when I was, uh, uh, well, throughout the course of my life and continue to do so to this day and a lot of different uh, elders and knowledge keepers and something I felt very, very, very fortunate to do. But I think one of my, well, I was just laughing, uh, Joanne, when you're talking there, because I, I got the itch so many times when I was a kid from swimming through like greasy sloughs in Southern Saskatchewan after ducks, like I'd just be covered in that, like at least once a fall, once a summer, uh, uh, helping my grandfather and father get their uh, birds out. But um, one of my fair, favorite memories, and I think about this a lot, is actually uh, in the River Valley in, uh, in Edmonton here in the Miskwachewaskahegan and uh, uh, Papa's Chase, uh, former Papa's Chase areas, and spending time with my, uh, my Noka, my grandmother, um, picking Saskatoon berries and, uh, and her hands just being like stained purple, you know, from picking so many berries. And like I, I like to say that lady was the Connor McDavid of getting a Saskatoon berry off of a tree. <laughs> She'd just be shaking in every she gets every single little berry somehow and you know i'd be and she'd fill ice cream pails with those and i'd just be like picking one at a time so slow eating half of them as i went and uh and i just think of that and i always kind of treasure those uh those memories of of her as well you write about and i want to ask you about your piece metis harvesting in alberta violence racism and resistance it it, it wasn't too long ago as a matter of fact it was just over a year ago that um, two hunters, uh, Jake Sansom and Morris Cardinal, their bodies were discovered uh, near an intersection, a rural intersection, uh, a devastating crime. Obviously, two men that apparently, uh, as far as anybody knows, were murdered in cold blood. Uh, absolutely innocent victims, uh, a crime that I think sent a chill across the country. It got you thinking about harvesting and it got you thinking about food tradition. And it's a very interesting angle that you took. Uh, can, can you take us into the perspective that you gleaned from that horrific tragedy? Uh, I think there's um, just in that sense, there's an ongoing kind of systemic stereotype around indigenous peoples and their harvesting practices that exist in uh, in Canada here. Um and it's a it's a very unfortunate one. And it's one that kind of um, trends towards that um, declining game numbers and declining land as a result because of indigenous harvesting, which in my um, in my experiences and experiences of every indigenous person who harvests, that's absolutely not the case. And uh, I try to put some perspective around who is actually harvesting in Alberta here, um, but also just the that ongoing kind of um, violence that people's face on a regular basis. And like, I'm not going to lie, like this fall when I was out moose hunting with an elder and uh, um, it's just the two of us and we had uh, got a moose and we were uh, just off of a, a kind of a rural road and two trucks, uh, you know, of guys kind of pulled up to see what we were doing. And, and like instantly, you know, your heart starts racing and you're like, Oh, what's, what's going to happen here. And, um, and thankfully we were able to, I was kind of like, no, 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 no. We got permission to be here. Like get, please leave us now kind of thing. And, and they did, but it was uh, just those like instances of, uh, violence and racism that you might face along the along the way when you're out out harvesting there. Um, and I uh, and I wanted to kind of highlight too just uh, um, a lot of the lack of ability of um, peoples to be able to gain their traditional foods and traditional um, uh, traditional harvesting practices through our um, our movement into urban centers. And that's something as a Métis person and a, a harvester, I really try to. Um, help with is to harvest to where I can 
um, you know, be able to provide uh, meat for my friends who aren't able to leave the city through financial means, because they don't drive, they don't, they never learned those skill sets that I would feel very fortunate to have been able to have learned um, to provide like medicines that we harvest with, uh, with elders to some of our friends and to be able to bring that community back through, um, through those practices into an urban center. Um, and something I've tried to do through even my education work is try to um, find more ways of getting youth, uh, Indigenous youth connected back to those practices so that we can retain them and move them forward. And that's where amazing uh, teachers and writers like Joanne and David uh, really, really help with those pieces too. David, you know, I should... I was, uh, oh, go ahead, yeah, please. When I was a younger woman, and there was about 10... Uh, women we used to go up into the mountains to pick medicine i mean you ask you have a group of native women you ask them what their favorite vehicle is and they'll all tell you you know uh, it's uh four by four super cab you know? <laughs> so we all have these these trucks you know and then we're going up the mountain and on the mountaintop you know when you're picking medicine that medicine grows in beds of of, of um, moss and it's such a clean quality. You can just pick the medicines out like that. I mean, but we have to we have to do ceremony before we do this. But in this one particular trip when we were going up the mountain to pick medicine, all of a sudden, and I don't know how she saw it, it was an older woman, and she was in kind of the leading the leading truck, and she just stopped. And she always carried a rifle in, in the back. And so she brought that out. And somehow she saw this deer, you know, up on the side of that mountain. And she got out and, you know, just, you know, you could tell that she lived her life in the bush. She just, you know, boom, you know, it was down, you know, on one shot. So we went running up that mountain to go and get that, that deer. And there's something, you know, women, and this is a rite of passage for women, is when we receive our knives. And I had received my knife and it was this brand new, beautiful buck knife. And she, her knife was dull. So I handed her mine. And just at that moment, we were just about to touch I realized what I'd done, that this knife was now hers. And it was just amazing how she did it, that she kind of cut the sack out of it right away. And then, you know, she brought it down to her truck. But that the ceremonies that we did previous to that and asking about, you know, this medicine and that, that food is medicine. It's part of a big pie of that, that medicine. And her just bringing her down and just watching her, you know, with that animal, you know, when we went to go pick up all of our, our uh, medicine on the mountaintop and you know coming back down and she had it skinned and gutted and ready for butchering you know by by the end of that day it was just amazing to watch so we were incredibly incredibly blessed on that day you know picking picking medicine and you know her ability to hunt it was just marvelous thank you for sharing that i uh <clears throat> This this is not a profound observation. Um, I'm intimidated to make it in front of the three of you. But let me just say, as a white dude, um, it has been my absolute honor to be invited to participate in, in a couple of smudges in particular that have been very meaningful. And I've learned so much. And the culture that's been shared there has not the, the moments have been very significant. Um, Joanne, you, you invoking the word medicine. I think that when, when you talk to indigenous people, the use of that word is so different than how non-indigenous people use the word medicine you know what i'm getting at? i'm sure all three of you david you probably know exactly what i'm talking about i mean it just it just reiterates the connection to the land the history there, there's so much that goes into it do, do you feel that yourself i should mention by the way i didn't in your introduction you're a member of the norway house cree nation mm. 
Yeah, I definitely think that the terminology varies, you know, within the indigenous communities Mm -hmm. across Turtle Island, um, you know, medicine definitely means something different than, you know, picking up some Tylenol at the, uh, at the pharmacy. Um, You know, the the traditional medicines um, that we use um, are are life-giving medicines that are, uh, the land is, it gifts us with. Um, and I, you know, you, see, you hear the term a lot as well that, you know, being on the land is medicine. Um, the, being around the waters is medicine. Um, they're, they're healing experiences or life-giving experiences um, that I think uh, are sacred in, in, in our many Indigenous communities uh, across Turtle Island. And I think that, you know, in, in, in out of respect, uh, the elders would be able to give you uh, a better answer. Um, but that has, that's how I have come to understand it. Um, you know, and, and the use of traditional medicines like, you know, sage and cedar and, um, tobacco and, and then the, the, the medicine, the concept of, of healing medicines. Uh, and I, I felt that I felt that on the land with my father, um, it felt like uh, we were, we were, um, we were healing just by being there. And to me, that's medicine as well. Um, so, you know, just having your feet on the land, I think is, uh, is also, uh, an important healing experience. That's such a beautiful way to put it. Um, this doesn't have my heart's a little bit heavy this morning. I know a lot of people's hearts are heavy this morning. I'm sure the three of you included. This has nothing to do with food or traditions or hunting and gathering, but the story of a British Columbia. And I want to ask you about this. I mean, Connor um, so capably talks about it and, and, and in, tragically in a personal sense about the impact of, of racism or perceived threats. Um, you know, the chief of uh, this is Chief Roxanne Casimir of the Tkemlips uh, community in, in British Columbia has confirmed that uh, by way of, of of new technology, they've they've been using a type of radar uh, that has allowed them to detect. Uh, it's a ground penetrating radar specialist. They detect the bodies, the remains of 215 children. Uh, buried on the site of the former Kamloops Indian Residential School. At this point, it's believed that those deaths are undocumented. It's believed that some of these children were as young as three years old. I can't have the three of you here and not talk about this. Uh, Connor, I know that when you talk about racism, I know that this is certainly part when we talk about reconciliation in Canada. Uh, it starts with acknowledging uh, some of these legacies, including residential schools in Canada. Some of them open in the province of Alberta into the 1990s. Uh, David, a discovery like this is abhorrent. Uh, obviously, it's going to be disturbing to, to people across the country and to people around the world. How do you process news like this? And does this change anything, do you think, when it comes to the national discussions and, and meaningful action that we're expecting to see? Well, you know, first of all, I'll just try and get through it because um, I'm still processing it as well. Um, and, I, you know, I've written a lot about this Um for indigenous people, this this is no surprise, uh, in my opinion. Uh, we know that this the system was gen- was genocide. Um, we know that thousands of children lost their lives um, in a place where they should have been safe, um, and where they were abused and and they were murdered, and or left to die. Um, and so, you know, for me, you know, my grandmother was a re- residential school survivor, and she died without having the platform or the safety of telling her story. So that's a lost history. Um, what I hope this does um, through, you know, such an unthinkable tragedy. And my grandmother could have been one of those kids who had passed away in these schools. Um, is it, it, it leaves no question 
that this system was a system of cultural genocide and of genocide. And, um, you know, as Canadians, if we don't acknowledge that, we're never going to reach a point where we're able to reconcile. Um, you know, we have to acknowledge that we had a colonial system and still have colonial systems in this country, which were fashioned to destroy identity and at the expense of the lives of kids. Um, we should be ashamed um, collectively about our history and, and feel accountable and responsible to do something to write it. Um, we can't go back and change the past, um, but we all need to work together to make sure that things like this um, do not happen again um, and ensure that um, everybody understands and is taught what happened in this country um, and what is happening today in this country because we still have colonial systems like the foster care system, which is doing um, long lasting damage to children, families and communities. Um, and so I hope that it just sheds light on um, that truth. Connor, uh, before I get you, I want to mention that, you, you know, you're currently you're the manor, manager of Indigenous Supports and Services at Norquest College in Edmonton. You support staff and students in their Indigenous Student Center. You implement the college, the college's indigenization strategy. Um, and it's essentially I mean, it's literally your job to create meaningful community engagement opportunities with Indigenous communities, stakeholders, elders and students. Um, the Indigenous education file is one that you currently work on, participate in, are working to grow. How does that impact how you process devastating discoveries like this one in BC? Uh, I do have to mention that as of like two weeks ago, I've moved on from Norquest College. So I'm just. Uh, well, up until uh, recently. That. Okay. Thanks for mentioning. But up until I know recently. My, I know this... my former colleagues at Norquest would want me to like say that. So sure. I, I'm teaching in the Pemetisolin program at McEwen University right now. Uh, um, okay. And uh, and I think this is one. Well, David spoke very eloquently about it. And uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's not like David mentioned. It's not new. You know, like we've known this. It's just becoming more. Um, more recognized in kind of mainstream Canadian Western culture. Um, but for Indigenous peoples, this isn't anything new by any means. And um, in these courses I teach at McEwen in uh, Indigenous Studies 100, I, I'm astounded at the, um, at the level of pe people coming into these classes who don't know this at this current day and age in 2021. And I think it's an absolute failure of our K-12 education systems that this isn't a talked about and taught thing on a regular basis like and that we're not having these conversations from a younger age with people in Canada and actually having true conversations around this and true conversations around Indigenous histories here led um, by Indigenous peoples led by Indigenous elders led by Indigenous knowledge holders um, and not from um, a Western perspective at this point. And if we're going to truly shape and change the narrative of how we build um, build bridges between our, our nations, between our groups, and, and create a different uh, path for our youth in Canada moving forward, we need to, yeah, change the way we um, view our education system around things like residential schools. Because um, And Yellowhead Institute has done some great work around this, but... Uh, you can see the lack of movement on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to actions, And I really hope that uh, something like this will start spurring people to recognize governments that will be moving forward relationships with Indigenous peoples. Joanne, a big and part may of... May I just add something quickly? Please. Sorry. 
Sorry, I just want to add something because no. Connor brought up a great point there. Um, you know, and I recently, uh, just in the last year year or so, um, experienced uh, something similar in in Alberta where they were they were literally censoring Indigenous literature. They were they were they had a list um, where they were preventing Indigenous writers' books from being taught in classrooms um, because um, they believed that it required um, pre pre and post conversation. Um, which I found baffling because that's a teacher's job and teachers want to do that job um, or that it visually inferred um, abuse um, in residential schools. So the prevention of truth, um, ripping the truth from kids' hands by not giving them access to resources um, is something that, uh, we, that needs to be a thing of the past. Uh, and when I spoke out ab- about it, and I spoke directly to the the um, Minister of Education, Dave Eggers, at the time, um, he gave me a flippant political answer that, um, you know, really, really uh, spoke to me about how much work we still have left to do. So we need to demand better of our leadership uh, in this country. Uh, we need, and, and it needs to be a grassroots movement, because if you're going to wait for the government to do the right thing, you're going to be waiting a long time. And and it's worth pointing out, by the way, that that's uh, that David here is talking about the previous government, former education minister David Egan. So this is not something that's been limited to some sort of a partisan perspective. And, and let me also note that federal governments of different political stripes also have really lacked to make meaningful action on this file. This is an issue across Canada that may be influenced politically, but is not certainly exclusive to one political party. Uh, Joanne, you've you've spent, what, 30 years or something like that as a community developer. You've been traveling uh, across this country, you've been developing and and and, and uh, rolling out workshops for the RCMP, for Corrections Canada, for Alberta Health, for Alberta Justice. In conversations that we've had on this show, and and, and generally speaking of, of where systemic racism exists or where we still see uh, racism rear its ugly head in Canada, we're talking about the RCMP, Corrections Canada, Alberta Health, Alberta Justice. We're talking about the exact departments that you've worked with. You have thirty years experience here. When you heard this news about these 250 young children that were buried, uh, essentially no record of their deaths, it's believed at this time undocumented. I mean, based on your experience and and of course, your humanity, how do you process it? This is the way I process it, is that people want to go to reconciliation, but we're not yet finished with the truth. Mm. And we have to say that truth. And that truth only comes up by discoveries like this, something that we've always known. We knew that there were a lot of deaths going on. We knew that there were a lot of families grieving, you know, that they didn't know what happened to their children. This begins to answer that, but we all always knew that there was far more deaths going on. You know, my, my husband is Jerry Saddleback, and he was the one of two Indigenous spiritual advisors to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. When it, and when it was here, I served as cultural advisor. And one of the things that we began to understand is that it's now coming into 200 years. It's coming into the second century where we have not had a full say over the lives of our own children. You know, before it was the residential schools, without our our agreement, without our knowledge, some a lot of the times that they were literally torn from the arms of the women. Women have a very violent history with the police in this country. And we have a very violent history with, with the health services, you know, when they were without our knowledge or consent sterilizing us, you know, that that has never been addressed. There's so many truths yet that have not been addressed. And now the, the um, 
foster homes that are all people called a new residential school. You know, Alberta apprehends more children than any other place in the world. We have our children used now as a commodity and we keep that, that engine going, that big system going with no real accountability of what they're doing with our children. So it goes on and on and on, and the abuse that our children get, the, the murders that happen you know, to our children when they're in foster care. You know, we, we want to be able to stop that. We want to say, not one more child. You know, I worked a lot of prisons, and those, it, it's ruled by gangs you know, in the federal prison system. And when we were talking about this, about their lives and growing up in foster care, and they, they didn't blame their mothers. You know, what they said was, she may have been a prostitute, she may have been an alcoholic, she may have been an addict, but where were you talking about the government when she needed support, when she needed education, when she needed training for a job? And they said, there's only one, there's only, pardon me, there's only two reasons why we're here. They said racism and poverty. That's why we're here. You know, so that there, we want to talk about that system, why it's so important to work with those systems. You know, and, and it, it's not going to take you know, right away to change the systemic parts in those systems that are racist. Because people, they know that racism is, is a terrible thing, but when faced with it in themselves, they don't recognize it. They don't know what it is. But, and they don't want to be part of that because they don't want to believe that they themselves are racist. So there's a ton more of education and particularly relationship building. We have to be related. I mean, one of the very reasons why they call me Nopum at the, at the uh, library is because it immediately puts us in kinship. Mm. We are immediately related. And that's what we need to be. We need to feel those relationships and, and how we are connected. Because what you do to me, you do to the world and, and vice versa. Just to very quickly say, you know, I want you to know and I want your public to know there is not some pan-Indigenous culture. There isn't some pan-Indigenous, you know, issue. You know, there, there are hundreds of, of tribes and, and nations out there. Like, for instance, Ryan, I can tell that he's from the East, you know, because uh, we don't call it over here Turtle Island. We call it Menestic. We call that the island. And Menestic is North America, Central America, and South America. That's the island that we're talking about. Thank you. Thank you. Thank all the three of you. This is I, I, I feel like we're going to need about three hours here, but but we will recognize your time. I mean, when you said people want to talk about reconciliation, but we're not done with the truth yet. I mean, that's just I felt that like heavily. And I, I think it's so true and it's so accurate. Um, in just a moment, I want to talk about I mean, this this brings us back to our conversation of why the three of you are here talking about the traditions and talking about the spiritual connections and talking about the ideas of community and and maybe in some circumstances, how that is being uh, sustained or restored in some First Nations and in some communities. We'll be back with our panel in just a quick second. We wanted to remind you that the team at Park Power, the best way that you can get in touch with us through the show, and then the best way you can get on our radar later during the day on social media is on Twitter and on Instagram using our hashtag RealTalkRJ. It's powered by Park Power. They want to remind you on their website right now, parkpower.ca, you can sign up to bring over your services, natural gas, electricity, internet. It's nice and easy. They take you through the step. And of course, don't forget the promo code 2021-REALTALK. That's how you save 70 bucks 
on your first bill. The team at Alta Moving and Storage knows this is the time of year that people are starting to move. Nobody wants to move in the middle of January. Well, if you want to take as much stress out of the experience as possible, why not consider one of their pod-style moving containers? This is a family-owned business that's been proudly operating in this province for a long time, helping people find their storage and moving solutions. Gone are the days of the truck idling in the middle of the street. They drop off the pod-style container. You fill it at your leisure. They'll take it. They can store it for a while. They can drop it off at your new place. You unload it again at your leisure. Then they'll come pick it up. You find them online at altastorage.ca. Make sure you tell them that Real Talk sent you. And the team at Eden Landscaping wants to remind you that this is the time of year that they're helping people turn dreams into reality. They know that that you, just like me, have been staring out into your front and backyard all winter thinking about what you should probably get around to doing. But is it realistic? You're going to get all the veggie planter boxes in, that decorative stone tile, the outdoor kitchen kitchen and still find time for family time why not hand over the reins to eat in landscaping for more than 20 years they've been earning the trust of customers many of them return customers you can find the evidence there at landscapeedmonton.ca it's a huge honor to have joanne saddleback connor kerr and david robertson joining us here on the show today we're talking about traditions uh, in particular uh, traditions with first nations and uh, in the context of hunting gathering trapping fishing foraging david i've been hanging on to this fact for a little while because this is this is my head snapped up when i heard this you know exactly what i'm about to tell our audience that the author of On the Trap Line is a vegan. How did that happen? That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, Ryan, how long is this podcast? As but, long um, as we uh, want it to be. <laughs> my, my wife uh, has been vegetarian for, uh, well, ever since she was, a, she was a, uh, maybe 12 or 13 years old. And uh, when we got married, uh, we, we made an agreement that I would eat meat out of the house, uh, not in the house. Uh, and eventually she allowed me to bring fish into the house. Um, and I, we, I was eating meat so little that um, I decided that I would just stop eating meat altogether. Um, and so, you know, initially it was because out of availability, I just didn't, you know, I just didn't bother eating it anymore because I wasn't eating very much of it. Um, over time, though, it, it has become more of an ethical choice for me. Um, you know, I, I used to run an, an Indigenous workforce development program. Uh, we, were, we, were, um, we were placing Indigenous uh, people from different communities into uh, jobs within the manufacturing industry. And uh, one of the uh, one of the one of the places, and I won't I won't name the business, but um, it was a food manufacturer. And I spent the I spent the day on the kill floor, and um, you know it was one of the worst days of my life. Um, and so when I, I compare that kind of, and you mentioned ethical slaughter before, Ryan, I don't think there is such a thing. Um, we have you have animals on a on, a, on an assembly line um, being ripped to shreds. Um, and I just, I don't think that's honoring an animal. I don't think that's respecting an animal. Um, and so I'm vegan out of that ethical choice. I've always said, uh, and I've said to my wife and I've said to other people, the only meat that I would ever eat again is meat that I was able to catch on the land, um, that I was able to honor and respect, um, either, you know, fishing on by the trap line with my father, um, or going out on the land or in hunting. 
um, and being able to go through the right protocols to honor the sacrifice the animal has given to me. Um, otherwise, I have I have no uh, time for meat um, in the way that it's prepared and sold today. Uh, and I, I think it, there is a there is a colonial aspect to that. You know, uh, traditionally, for the, for the Cree people, and I'm happy I'm happy that all of us on this panel have have Cree blood in us. Um, it makes it, it makes it a very good panel, <laughs> but um, we 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 used to live on the land and um, sustained ourselves by, by with the with the with the bison, and um, and never overhunted. Um, we used the bison and every part of the bison um, to sustain ourselves. Um, it was what we subsisted off of. And then when settlers came into this uh, into this country, um, overhunted and almost made the bison extinct. Um, and we are overhunting now um, in in mass producing a meat for people to eat. Um, I just think we need to have more respect um, for for animals, as we do need to have more respect for the environment and for the land. Uh, and that's that's been my stance on it. And that's why that's why it's turned from just being uh, you know wanting to make my wife happy, <laughs> which she still want to do, um, to you know to a very ethical choice. I appreciate your candor. I'm I, I'm on I'm on this journey where um, I, I, I've got to say a few things just right up front. I absolutely I mean, there's nothing better in the world to me than a beautifully prepared piece of meat with some with some freshly uh, grated horseradish on top and some some butter pan seared potatoes. I mean, like that really gets me going. But at the same time, um, I am also really starting to wrestle with questions or, around these types of things. And I I can totally understand how that journey. I don't think that there just has to that you have to pick a team and then fight the other team. I, I think for me, it's a process. I'm curious to know where I'll be in 30 years. Quite honestly, I don't ever see myself completely cutting off meat. Um, but at the same time, I can totally I mean, you're, a story like yours absolutely fascinates me. Um, and I think it's really interesting. Joanne, I couldn't help but notice that you were nodding throughout what he what he was saying. What, what were you connecting with there? I was connecting with the, you know, the, the way that we do ceremonially uh, have that relationship with, with meat and that we see it as medicine. So it's done, you know, I mean, these are deities. These are where where our clan system come from. You know, these, these animal clans and the sky clans. I mean, these are, we re- recognize the kindness and compassion and love that they, that they give to human beings to be able to sustain us. So absolutely, we have to, we have to honor them. We have to be there. May I just say one thing? I know that we're kind of coming to the end here. I wanted to say something about where culture comes from, where that whole process comes from. You know, we have uh, it, it, all of it, our language, our gestural mannerisms, all of our ceremonies, they all come from one source, and that's our creation story, or what they call the long story. It's not that you have the long story and then more culture out here. No, the culture is the long story. The long story is is the culture. You know, when takes when we had a sacred encampment, you know, there were there were four versions. One, you know, like a the first one, let's say very quickly, you know, it was the intro version that took four days and four nights to tell several elders, you know, on a twenty-four hour clock. You know, in that second TP, you know, was the general version that took sixteen days and nights to tell. That third TP, you know, that took forty-four days and nights to tell. And then that fourth TP that took four months to tell. That's how vast and how big our creation story is. So, and it contains everything, you know, about, about our culture, including that relationship to meat, including that relationship to land or that relationship to, to animals, I should say, and what, what our relationship is to it. 
So it's very seeped, you know, in, in traditions of eons and eons. And it just doesn't go away. They say even, uh, you know, our old people, their prayers were so powerful that their prayers just are on top of the land waiting for us to pick it up, you know, so that we, it's never lost. It is never lost. And we, we regain it by, by ceremony, by going into ceremony. Thank you very much for that. I just want to keep saying thank you. Um, you know, this is and by and by the way, I, we we want to respect your time, but just FYI, this is one of the one of the one of the shackles that came off when I left terrestrial mainstream corporate radio was that if an interview needs to go ten more minutes, the interview can go ten more minutes. It's 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 a thing of real beauty here, but we recognize that you all have schedules and you, and you've given us your time, uh, Connor. I mean, circling back on, I mean, we we've talked about tragedy. Today, uh, we've talked about genocide. We've talked about tradition. We've talked about community. One of the beautiful things I think that we see around us is a is a, a at least from my perception, using my words, a resurgence or or, or an appreciation of, of renewal of understanding of indigenous traditions, including things like hunting and gathering, but but also the spirituality and the medicine we've talked about, etc. Much of this was intentionally stamped out, was intentionally killed. Let's use the word uh, through these residential schools. That's one example. We've talked to survivors of the '60s scoop. We understand that that much of this is this is not resolved. Uh, we talk about seven generations uh, that you know that, that would that would see healing over the course of a, a great period of time. But do you witness? Do you see firsthand uh, the, the restoration of some of this culture? What do you see with with young people in particular, and 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 how does it shape your perspective? Um, well, for one thing, it was pretty uh, hard for me to realize that I was no longer a young person recently when I was uh, chatting with some people and uh, my bunch of my students were like 19, 20. And uh, that was a pretty difficult. Moment it's all relative, Connor. It's all relative. Um, I, I wanted to uh, just tell, I was actually thinking of this when um, Joanne was talking about the foster foster care in Alberta here in that system. And um, and I remember I was working. I was well, I was younger at this point. I was probably in my mid 20s and I. Uh, we were setting up uh, medicine picking and harvesting on um, on a local First Nation around Edmonton on Paul First Nation uh, for kids who were in the um, child uh, child intervention system at the time. And I remember there was this one young boy in particular, and he was you know the social worker messages me beforehand and like basically listing off. He's this kid is you know he's diagnosed with A to Z and everything, and they're talking about all his behavior issue, blah 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 blah. Um, and to watch out for him basically he's 10 he's this 10 year old beautiful boy beautiful boy and we go out on the land to go medicine picking there and we're with a bunch of elders and and you should have seen this kid like he was just hanging off the leg of this elder soaking in all of the knowledge like just learning so much like it was just like this beautiful day this kid was just learning and i just remember just thinking to myself at the time like this this kid doesn't have like all these behavior, the behavior issues because of the classroom and these like constraints that are put around him. Like you bring him back to the land, you bring him back to meeting these elders from his community, you bring him back out here and he's going to succeed. He's going to thrive. He's going to learn. And you could just see that, like that, like light bulb switching in his head for this is who I really am. And this is who I really like should be. And, um, and I remember even just working back then and I would, bring kids from uh from edmonton who never really left uh edmonton or you know the inner cities here and be like hey we're gonna go chop wood at an elder's place and they'd be like i don't want to do that and i'm like no no come on we'll go chop wood at an elder's place and we'd go and we spend a day chopping wood um 
and the kids would just they'd hear stories you know the elders would be chatting some people from the community would come by to help out for a bit and like these kids they just and then afterwards you know there's like i'm gonna go let's go back out let's go chop wood let's go chop wood and there's such a yearning for this and there's such a uh a uh, desire from people to get back to this but it's often been yeah destroyed by like people getting pushed into cities um but even within that itself like there are so many opportunities even within a city to get back to the land like we're fortunate in the Miskuchiwaskahegan that we have this beautiful river valley with so much history uh and so much just um space there to go and learn learn from uh teachers like uh joanne and elders and um and others around there because there's there's a lot there and there's a lot of people that want to want to get back to this. And like, I, I wrote in that article you referenced earlier, Ryan, but like, I feel very privileged to have grown up, you know, with a family that like helped support me along that way. And I understand that a lot of people didn't have those same supports. And so I want to make sure that like, I'm, I can do my part to help try to connect people back into these, uh, some of these pursuits here. Um, if that's just, uh, working with some of these youth or, and, and I really do think that like this land-based education, um, and I know that's a corporate kind of education buzzword right now, because for indigenous peoples, that's always been our way of education is based around the land and the teachings of elders like uh, Joanne and her, uh, her husband, Jerry there. Um, and so it's just such like, I just feel very privileged to be able to um, spend time with peoples like this. And I, uh, um, yeah. And that's to be able to connect back to the land in general and like, and like just even the river in Edmonton, like the river, the North Saskatchewan, like it's just got so much history. And I think of when I sit on that like South shore and look out on it, you know, and I think of my, my grandmother, uh, who she was raised by her grandmother, who was born on the Papa's Chase, like Cree nation. Um, and she would have been born right where the low level bridge, like, um, enters on the North side on the Paonan, like the gathering place where now there's, uh, like, um, a bunch of buildings and a golf course and such, but you just think of like that connection back and that's not that far removed, you know, like Edmonton is a new city and it was under these indigenous Cree governance systems for a long, long, long time. Um, and then the Métis peoples joined in uh, later on and like, and, and it will like, and I think that's where we need to get back to these kind of uh, these indigenous governance systems. We're going to properly look at how we can, bring our kids back to our culture, bring our kids back to the way that we can move forward here. Uh, David, I, 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 I've not done your, your bio justice. I've had to sort of like rip off chunks of it and introduce them through the show because it's, you're, you're annoyingly accomplished. Um, but <laughs> your, your new book on the trap line, which we mentioned, it's not the one that, that, that earned you the governor general's literary award, at least not yet. That was when we were alone, which was in, in 2017. It was also a, a finalist, uh, the, the McNally Robinson best book for young people award, a finalist for the TD Canadian children's literature award. Uh, your memoir backwater family legacy and blood memory was a globe and mail and quill inquire book of the year in 2020. You also, Oh yeah. By the way, won the 2021, Congratulations, 2021 RTDNA Prairie Region Award for Best Podcast. And next year, this one will be old enough, and maybe we can go head to head on that. But congratulations, David. That's a that's no small feat. Uh, is it called Kiwu? Is that what you call your podcast? It's Kiweo. Kiweo. Um, and that's uh, 
Yeah, that's a Cree word that means uh, he goes home. Ah. And it's uh, just K- K-I-W-E-W. So you're, you're, you're illustrating, you're writing, you're podcasting. You are all about the story and the tradition and the communication. Are you confident that young indigenous people, are you confident that, that, that people all around you, regardless of background, are, are tapping more into these traditions or understanding more about these traditions? Do you think that the future is, is bright, so to speak? Yeah, I think it is. Um, I think we're in a very important decade right now where we have seen, um, you know, this this movement towards cultural revitalization and cultural reclamation, which has been, um, you know, which has been encouraged by uh, storytelling, uh, which has been encouraged by more and more Indigenous writers uh, being given a platform to tell their stories through literature which has been uh, which has been enabled by um, elders, um, which has been enabled by uh, knowledge keepers. Um, you know, I think that we are in a in a time right now where we're just seeing the beginnings of of a resurgence uh, of our languages and our cultures across this country, and um, it's a very exciting and a time to be living in right now because of that. There's still a lot of work to be done, and uh, you know, we we won't see really. Um, the fruits of that work for decades. Uh, my dad used to say that for as long as we've been experiencing trauma, we'll be working towards healing. Um, but I do feel that, like this is a this is a time where um, I, I have had more hope than ever than ever in the past. Um, and I'm not like you know I'm not a spring chicken anymore. But uh, I think that uh, we're it's it is it is an encouraging time, and uh, it gives me hope. Um, that not only uh, Indigenous children and Indigenous people um, are, are going through this important time of reclamation, um, but non-Indigenous um, readers, for example, are learning truths through story. Um, and it's helping us to um, share knowledge that's important to build better leaders um, as, as youth read these stories and grow up with the knowledge that we never had when we were growing up. Um, and so for all those reasons, I think that uh, while there's a lot of work to be done, um, we're, we're, in a, we're in a good, we're in a pretty good spot right now to well positioned to, um, to, to be in a, in a better future. Hmm. And, and Joanne, you've got, a, I suppose, this year uh, to, to do exactly that with a really unique opportunity as, as the elder in residence at the Edmonton Public Library. How is what David's just described and, and Connor as well and what we've been talking about today? How does that influence how, how you have been spending and how you'll continue to, to invest in this year? At the Edmonton Public Library, I, I am their elder in residence, just not for 2021. <laughs> that was kind of a, a misleading you know, thing that the, our marketing did. But the um, you mean you're there for longer? Pardon me. Are you there for longer? Is that what you mean? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Oh, <laughs> I, I thought it was a one year. It's it's typically been a one year term. Is that not the case anymore? No. Oh, no. Great. No, no, no. Great. Yeah. Yeah. But but what I wanted to convey about what all this talk has done for me is to leave you with, with this or to make sure that this is said is that before Europeans came over here, we had treaties between nations already that existed. And they were based on one single principle. The creator made everything perfect. Let's leave it as is. Like I say, that ability to maintain, you know, and sustain and and help to uh, keep healthy the land, you know, that the sophistication, uh, again, of of philosophy and technology that it takes to do that. 
to leave as small a human imprint as possible. And there's a whole bunch of series of things, how we work the culture in order to make that happen. I wanted to make sure to say that. And that's what all of this taught, always leads me back, always leads me back to what our old people already knew, already knew. You know, when they call us, you know, Cree, they call us a nomadic, but it wasn't we were just wandering, you know, aimlessly, you know, about. I mean, we had very specific paths that we went to that led us straight through to South America, you know, on our medicine journeys. You know, that that when we were following the, the buffalo, you know, on this land and I also wanted to blow one more myth, you know, that, that people think about. They say that there were no horses here. Well, the geology and uh, anthropology societies of Alberta, they often ask my husband to come and come and speak with them. And a speaker that spoke after my husband was an anthropologist. And, and he confirmed what old Agnes Smallby used to say. He said, the, she said, they'll even lie to you that tell, tell you that there were no horses here, but there were horses here. And this anthropologist who was talking about that, and he said, the most plentiful animal roaming, roaming the plains 12,000 years ago was the horse. Hmm. And I thought of her right away. So she knows. And they say with much more compassion and kindness than what I'm capable of right now, they say one day science will catch up to us. Hmm. I'm so honored that the three of you have given us this hour. I'm so grateful for your expertise and your perspective and for the conversations I know. I mean, we've, we're just planting seeds right now with so many people. And as this as this podcast uh, makes the round and, and is shared, I just have no doubt that it's going to spur so many interesting conversations as people gather in community and and are able to continue to, to think about how this applies to their own personal lives. Joanne Saddleback, Connor Kerr, David A. Robertson, thank you. Uh, so much. Uh, we greatly appreciate this. Hey, hey, hey. Akazani, thank you. And ask him at them. Hi, hey. Friends of the show, if if you connected with this like I did, and like I think our team did as well, I'm basing this on body language and 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 the fact that we're just taking in so much of this. I mean, I, I, I feel like there were several things that were said by our guests. Uh, Joanne noting reconciliation with truth coming first. That to me, you know, we're not done with the truth. That, incredibly powerful. Hit the like button here. Make sure you can share the link. Uh, and of course, we'll be pushing this out a little bit later on today. But uh, what a powerful conversation. Want to take a second to remind you that Westworld computers, if, if, if you're streaming this show, whether it's at home on your desktop, whether it's on your laptop, whether you're streaming us live on Mixler. I just saw Richard posted that Richard's on the go today and he's listening to us live streaming us on the Mixler audio app in his Jeep. Double duty, double whammy, boy, Richard. If you're having streaming issues and it's time to upgrade your gear the team at westworld computers has been helping people find solutions that work with their budgets for more than 40 years and that includes their team of technicians that have repaired that have found solutions to every mac product ever invented that's what 40 years of history gets you especially with a a family-owned business like this plus if they decide it's just not worth it if you decide you agree with them and it's time to upgrade they'll transfer all your information over from your old computer to your new one your old device to your new one for free. You just check them out online at westworld.ca. 
Speaking of Jeep, you know what I'm going to tell you. Obviously, you're not going to find a better Jeep selection, whether it's the, the Patriot, the Wrangler, the Grand Cherokee, the Grand Wagoneer that's just coming out right now. This is their luxury answer to like the Escalade and the Benz and the Navigator. That Grand Wagoneer is a real showstopper. St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge, they're able to share inventories. You can check out what they've got online. And of course, they've got a talented team, service professionals as well, that have earned the trust of their return customers for many years. You can find them under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. A shout out to the team at Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food as well. What's, what's Ranger on right now? Is it the beef? Oh, he loves the beef. Ranger loves the beef. Monroe and Moses are both on the beef right now, too. They've tried the chicken. They've tried. The, they've gone all different routes. <laughs> Monroe just hammers down on the beef. It's delivered to Sarah, to myself, and to all the other Happy Grand Dog customers on the schedule that you need. Edmonton, Calgary, Central Alberta, to your door delivery. Plus, of course, their team of nutritional experts ready to consult with you if need be. Your, your pup has a bit of a dietary thing you're looking to solve. That's what they do. Granddog.ca. The promo code REALTALK gets you 10% off your first time order. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about our, our, our question of the week uh, this week. We want to remind you that we'll be reviewing that on Monday. You can find it at RyanJesperson.com. We're, we're digging in this week. And, and we want to know how you're feeling and, and the sense that you're, you're making, if any, how you're processing what you're seeing in the Middle East, the violence in the Middle East and the, the con- you know, the uh, the connections here, you know, the, go- the government, the United States, the, the federal government here in Canada. There have been statements issued about Israel's activity here, about the activity around Hamas. Um, we're asking you just straight up to tell us how you feel about it. If you go to ryanjesperson.com, you can see right at the top, right on our homepage, there's a link here for the question of the week. It's very simple. You go to ryanjesperson.com. You click on question of the week. It's right at the top of the page. All right. And then that's where you can load it up and you'll see right there. It's going to take two or three seconds, uh, minutes rather. Let me be honest, two or three minutes to tell us uh, how you're thinking critically about this. We want to encourage you to answer openly about this. We want to get a bit of perspective that'll help us inform our discussion. And those discussions, of course, will continue uh, into next week. Uh, You can take that question of the week uh, through until Sunday. About Sunday at three o'clock is when the team at Y Station starts to put the data together and they put that top line report together. Of course, our Patreon supporters receive that exclusively, typically Sunday night into Monday morning when the report's done. We also talked about Alberta's reopening plan is kind of a fun, unscientific, unofficial Twitter poll yesterday. You can find it at RyanJesperson.com. It's closed now. We had about uh, 1,845 votes, uh, as mentioned, out of the gates today. 68% of you saying it's too soon. If you're just tuning in live, streaming live, we wanted to update you. About 20% of you, 19, you know, one in five of you said that you're torn. And you told us why you're torn about the reopening plan. About 13% of you said it's about time. You're ready to rock and roll. Sam, I didn't have a chance to get to you on that. When I asked Sarah earlier how she was processing that, were you surprised to see just about 13% of respondents say it's about time? I suspect that the number in real life is a little higher than 13%. What do you think? Yeah, I'm, I guess to me, it's, I don't have the knee jerk. It's about time reaction, but I mean, like my, my thoughts on, on this have been very clear from the beginning. Um, I think you're right. I think that, you know, maybe it speaks a little bit to, to who your Twitter audience is and that kind of stuff is and, and who our show's audience is. And, yep. and, you know, like we said, it's a very unscientific poll. But at the same time, I mean, you're right. I've seen 
on like just out in the wild and, and certainly on social media, a very loud sentiment saying like we need to be open yesterday. Um, I guess I wonder sometimes if it is a if it's a situation of the you know the, the people the most worked up about this have the loudest megaphones and we think it's a bigger sentiment than it is, or if it is you know not really reflected in our polling numbers. Yeah, which is which is a great point to make. It was interesting to hear Edmonton's mayor speaking out yesterday. Uh, if I can paraphrase, and we'll get to a clip of, of Mayor Don Iveson in just a second. If I can, is is it fair to paraphrase? He, he essentially said. Um, we'd rather see policy based on evidence and science and not the festival schedule. That was what Mayor Don Iverson basically said yesterday. That was his general take on this. I would I would definitely say so. I really appreciate that he's just, I mean, he's not up for re-election. He's not going, he's not trying to be mayor again. Yeah. So he kind of feels like, okay, now we can say what, what we really feel. <laughs> I don't care what party they represent. My favorite politician is a politician not seeking re-election. Absolutely. Because that's when they actually start to talk. And that's a lot of times when they've got like a year left. I, I almost feel that's you know, I'm not comparing the politicians or anything like that. The first one that comes to mind is Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. I don't see Joe Biden seeking second term. I think that he's just pedal to the metal right now trying to do stuff that he thinks is important. Um, so it depends. You can see, I mean, whether it's a city councilor, whether it's a, a, a premier, or a prime minister, whatever the case may be, oftentimes more individuals uh, at the individual level. It can get really interesting. Mayor Don Iveson uh, speaking to the media yesterday. Here's, here's a portion of what he had to say to the citizens of Edmonton. I think I've shown um, working with five premiers and and two different prime ministers uh, that I can work uh, with with anybody who is prepared to be a willing partner to build a great city for Edmontonians. Um, and I just don't have that in, in Jason Kenney's UCP government. I just don't. But I'm not the only mayor who feels that way uh, across the province about the way municipalities are treated. I also believe I'm channeling the frustration that I'm hearing from Edmontonians themselves. So there you go. That's, Love it. He's not going to say that if he has to work with the province for another four years, right? But but I, was, you know, with regards to saying it from a from a mayor's office, that's pretty significant. I think it's important as well to actually just you know acknowledge where we're at and what the relationship between municipalities and the provincial government what they what they're actually like right now, and it's all pretty hostile. I, I just really appreciate the frankness and the the openness and the honesty. <laughs> yeah. Um, someone said, who was it here? Tani says, uh, or Tony, Tani says, yeah, Mayor Iverson was, was hot under the collar yesterday. And, and then Jillian says, Mayor Iverson's always hot. Uh, I think you mean hot under the, I'm assuming that's what, you know, we would never want to, yeah, be in, we never want to be anything less than professional here. I'm assuming that Jillian just means that he's hot under the collar quite often. I don't know what that means. Michelle says, I feel like POTUS is governing as though he's not going to seek reelection, but I hope it will lead to his reelection should he run again. I'm trying to decide. Yeah, it's real talk. I don't know. Joe Biden in another three years, like with respect and uh, I'll I'll get accused of ageism. ageism. I'm going to get accused of ageism, but I, I just don't know. I, I, I think that there's a lot of things about Joe Biden that are great. There's some things about Joe Biden that I don't particularly prefer. Um, If it was handed to me on a ballot as a choice, Biden or Trump, it would have been a no brainer. Mm. Sometimes I would, I would categorize that as the lesser of two evils, but I would think I would hope Although this is easier said than done with political parties. The federal conservatives are a classic example here in Canada. Um, It's easier said than done to just like groom and ready top talent that doesn't get power hungry and look to 
you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. it, it, one of the things that's always interesting for me is that the, you know, at the, you know, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, you know, through the course of, you know, when they're those that are seeking the nomination, oftentimes there's like 15 candidates and they go at each other's throats and point out what lousy candidates the other person and then one person wins and then they're all like, but they're actually great. <laughs> right. It's kind of a strange. It's like the uh, it's the airing of grievances. Mm. Right. For those that observe Festivus, you know, it's the airing of grievances publicly and then they find the candidate and then they go. So I have to assume that that it's obvious to some. I'm just trying to state the obvious without actually saying it. Just say it. Well, no, I mean, there's the Joe Biden that that like, you know, there's like the the gifts of him, like running alongside President Obama and like doing all the cool stuff and like, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like there's the you know, the, the, you know, there's that famous gift of him like he's, he puts his aviator sunglasses down and zooms off in the convertible. And there's that Joe Biden. And then there's Joe Biden. That's like, quite frankly, is 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 like the rest of us do is is aging and he's aging rather quickly. And I just just don't know why am i even talking about this well, people are gonna pile on me of, but him in three years i he's one of if not the oldest president ever yeah so of the united states so i mean that's that's those are numbers as we talked about you're really great at math so those numbers are are higher than other numbers of previous presidents there is talk of you know kamala harris being well positioned to then come into yeah. the presidency. But as Joe Biden knows, being VP doesn't automatically doesn't win you the Oval Office, right? Absolutely. And nor should it. So, so he is he is the oldest person to assume the presidency. He took the presidential oath of office two months after turning 78. Right. So, I mean, that's not just I mean, there's there's people that are still professionals. We talk to some of them on the show sometimes that are in their mid 80s that are still just killing it, doing an amazing job. I don't know. I just kind of feel like there, there's signs to me that that Joe Biden is in the is in the twilight of his political career. So well, there needs to be there need to be contingencies. Absolutely. Just to like yeah. make sure that things are lined up. But with any with any president, there's always that's why there is a VP for one reason is, yeah. is uh, to be clear. I'm not saying that I think he's going to die. I'm just saying I think that like when it gets to a point where you have someone ah, I should just stop you you get to a point where you sort of I think the the, the general population starts to lose confidence in someone that that's unable to be whip smart and articulate and sharp all the time. And I just see signs that there's a bit of a slip and I'm starting to sound like Donald Trump. So I'm just going to knock it off. I just am calling just it. Don't talk I, about stamina. Do I'm not calling talk it, about. I'm calling it how I see it. And I see it with Joe Biden. He's just aging like any normal person does. But you just wonder in four years, this might be an obvious question. Who is the youngest president at the end of his tenure? It's probably an obvious question. Are you? Do you want the answer or? Well, yeah, no, I'm asking you. The, yeah, I mean, I, I know the answer. Oh, okay. The answer is right in front of me. Okay, that's what I was wondering. I was the like, youngest are you president. Expecting me to look this up right no, now? No, no. The youngest president at the end of his tenure. Kennedy. Yeah, nailed it. <laughs> at 46. Dang. Uh, the youngest president. A tragic end, obviously, to the end of his tenure. His lifespan, the shortest of any president. Who is the youngest person to become a former president? In other words, not to be assassinated. The youngest person. To become a former president. I'm doing an American history lesson right now. It's totally unfair to the two of you. There, there was no note that there was going to be a quiz today. Yeah, I would have appreciated a little bit of a heads up. Yeah. That's the whole point of a pop quiz. At age, that's the whole point of a pop quiz. At age 50. Wait, wait, wait. Give me, give me a second. Give okay. me a second. Okay. His, his legacy lives on. The, oh, wow. I was about to word this in a really weird way. 
I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. Those that stick around to our late hour two of the of the show get some weird comments as a reward. <laughs> this president's legacy lives on. This is so weird in children's bedrooms around the world. Jimmy Carter. Do you know, Sam? Teddy Roosevelt. Boom. That's two points for you, Sam. Teddy bear, the Teddy Roosevelt, the teddy bear, the whole nine yards. It's like one of the most amazing. Are you just hearing about this? That was a very time? obvious hint. Yeah, I was dropped. <laughs> well, because I didn't want to like leave us hanging here for for ages. Um, the oldest president at the end of his tenure was former Hollywood actor Ronald Reagan, Reagan okay. at 77. But of course, when Joe Biden leaves office, if and when Joe Biden, uh, well, obviously not. Yeah, <laughs> I was <laughs> like, where are you going with that one? <laughs> when Joe Biden, you know transitions over to eternal life as, no uh yeah he'll be he'll be the oldest so yeah pretty pretty interesting uh stats there on the fly you'd never believe this real talkers but we did not plan this you'd never believe it but this was not on our list of things that we were going to talk about today spartan canuck says william henry harrison actually had the shortest tenure interesting yeah, we didn't. I don't think we awarded anyone with the shortest tenure, just the youngest at the conclusion of their tenure. But this is great. People are starting. This is why the live chat's so great. People were guessing Clinton, Obama. In fact, no, there you have it. Well, how many points did I get? I mean, Sam got two. How what many? Did you, what did you answer correctly Kennedy. again? Remind me. Kennedy. Oh, actually, you deserve. Yeah, no, that was good. And, and actually, you answered with authority. I did. Um, Decisive. To keep it neck and neck, to keep this a nail biter, you also will receive two points. Do we have any candles? This feels that like I this feels this. No, well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Easy there, big checker. <laughs> Some random guy says, I love how Ryan keeps saying how he won't say something potentially problematic and then he just does it anyway. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the whole point of the show. Not for me to come on here and be an asshole, but like if there's something that I feel is like is real and worth saying, we want to say it. You know, one question I didn't get to with with uh, David, with David A. Robertson, mm. Governor General Award winning author. I'd like to get him back sometime and talk to because we were just the conversation was going in a, in a I don't want to say a more meaningful place, but I'm going to say today, at least a way more important place talking about traditions and residential schools. And boy, was that ever powerful. But I'd love to know. We'll get him back sometime. How does he reconcile? Because this is more, I think, of an individual interview question. Yeah. But how does he re So he talks about the ethics of becoming a vegan in that journey, which was a fascinating journey, right? Even the negotiation with his now wife about eating meat outside the home, not bringing it into the home. Right. Fascinating relationship dynamics between, you know, carnivores, whatever you call them, and, and vegans or vegetarians. Right. Well, this is the struggle that I have. I'm not I'm I call myself a faux vegetarian or a pseudo vegetarian because I'm kind of like selective. But I really so you're like I'm sort of like a metropolitan. You're like sort of like a. You're, you're a surface vegan surface when it's popular when it, no when you're with other vegans yeah. you're definitely a vegan def no and then at the real talk christmas party you're going to be just the first one in line at the pot roast just <laughs> yeah. no that is not what i am um i don't cook meat in my house okay however ranger people that know i feed ranger meat you feed him quality raw meat from grand dog essentials twice a day yeah and it's so it's I, but what are you going to feed your dog salad? Well, like, you can't. I can't. I can't. No, that's my that's, point. Yeah. That's my whole point. Like if your if your dog was in the wild, in other words, if it was a wolf, uh, it's not going to be eating. It's not going to be foraging for dandelions. Absolutely, but that that's precisely like what when you're talking about David A. Robinson and uh, yeah, just 
saying that you know he had that struggle that's the struggle is real but i haven't even got to my i haven't even Ooh. got to my ethical quandary with david i haven't even i've just been teeing it up and we're running our mouths because it's friday and we're having a good time and the beers are cold there in the cold beer fridge and we can't wait to get to those and we're wrapping up the week and we're having fun and everybody knows we're just a few minutes away from trash talk that's coming up in a second so this is where we can hang out and kind of talk these things out and i do want to get to the ethical quandary potential in a second but sam's like bouncing in his chair to chime in on what we're feeding our dogs or what oh not well I have a really good friend. Her name's Bree. She's in uh, Toronto. Big shout out to her. Uh, she's a vegan. She's very outspoken about it. And and she That's has, weird. Well, I, let me rephrase that. There are people, <laughs> I think, uh, on the on the vegetarian vegan spectrum that are very shamey when they're outspoken about it. It's, sure. It's everything is you need to get in line. You're ruining the earth. How how dare you? And and she's not like that. She's not like that at all. She talks about vegan cooking and she talks about you know interesting recipes. But she also has a cat that she feeds raw meat to and and very poignantly says my cat did not choose to be vegan and a vegan diet is not appropriate for a cat yeah so there's i i don't see any issue with recognizing that there's these animals that we invite into our homes and they're Natural diet needs to be meat based And that's okay that's what makes them healthy Yeah yeah exactly I was I was watching a, a this was amazing uh, Maybe I'll push it out later today because I know there's nothing more annoying real talk is if I'm going to Talk about something and then you got to go digging for it So I'll push it out on my Twitter later today But there was this really great video a Fascinating video of a certain type of crab I don't know What type have you seen this it's like a, It's like a, it looks like it's almost thumbnail sized Or like tiny right like a size of a Toonie maybe um, and and it's it, it uses its one claw and, it, and it's working around in a circle and it's throwing these globs of sand up and it's it's rotating in this circle and ultimately it creates what looks like almost a sand igloo and it does it in like 90 seconds and it creates a new home for itself and the person that pushed it out on Twitter said this is like one of the most intelligent animals on earth or this is one of the most intelligent animals I've ever seen and it triggered people people that were like Oh, the, you know, why don't I stomp my boot down on my Gore-Tex boot on that crab? How, and we'll see who's more advanced. Or someone's like, yeah, like the crab building the sand or like the space shuttle. Like, who's more advanced? And people all started getting into these things about like, who's more advanced? And it, it was kind of interesting. You know, I saw one of the responses from someone that said, yeah, I think probably a stampede of elephants could probably take down your house, too. But does that make them more intelligent than you? How do we how do we judge the metric of intelligence? Fascinating story. We can apply the same sorts of things or the same sorts of ideas to, to things like food or animals or how we approach the. I mean, what 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 drives veganism or, or vegetarianism? I'm not in authority on it. Uh, I'm not qualified to speak to it, but I would say some people for some people, it would be dietary concerns for many people. I think it would be ethical concerns or otherwise. And and that's that, that's an, sort of a, uh, an indicator of how we think and how we make decisions of ourselves, uh, you know, for ourselves. You know, I, I get lost in these rabbit holes. I was I was reading about a, a photojournalist that was in the you know one of the the massive game reserves somewhere in Africa a while ago and shot this this uh, <laughs> photographed this lion <laughs> don't take anything for granted these days uh, but he photographed a lion whose name was like Scar something or something Scar and it's if you Google it just Google like Scar lion starving and uh if you be careful because if you see the photo you're going to remember it forever um it's a it's a lion that this photojournalist watched die he saw it at a he saw it at a watering hole 
and it was lapping up water and they could they, they saw that it was kind of laying kind of strange but but his guide was saying to him this is a very rare opportunity you don't typically see male lions just down at just drinking like so he's taking it in but they're realizing it's laying kind of strange and then these elephants show up and the elephants are alarmed that this lion's there obviously and this big bull elephant starts to threaten the lion and starts to kind of run at him and the lion's like you know sort of trying to run away and as it gets up you see oh my gosh this lion you know i don't know what a male lion weighs what is it like i don't know approximately 700 pounds something like i don't know this one weighs like 150 pounds 200 like it, it looks horror it's 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 on its last legs it's been starving for whatever reason maybe it's kicked out of the pride we don't know the story but the exertion that it took to get away from the elephant the lion goes into the long grass lays there for a while and his eyes, he's panting. He takes his last breath in front of this guy. Like, what an experience. And he sees this once proud lion, the, you, know, you know, the king, right? Die in front of him and the life go out of him. And it was fascinating to see some of the people saying, well, why didn't you give it water? Why didn't you give it food? And it's just like, I mean, I think that maybe the average person would go, that's completely unreasonable. That's actually totally ridiculous. But what about the same time? I mean, I think of a video on Instagram I saw a while ago of a shark going after a tortoise. Have you seen this one? No. I think it's a bull shark. Sarah, I'm just like ruining your Friday right now. But this is real life. This is the whole point of the conversation. And this this tortoise is trying to get up onto a boat yeah. and the boat is. You know, it's kind of work around the outboard motor and get up on the and it's it, it appears to be I don't I'm not a uh, master of, of tortoise body language, sea turtle body language. But like it's 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 obviously panicking and the sharks attacking it from the back and it's trying to get in the boat. People are like, why didn't you pull it up into the boat? <laughs> Is that humanity's job? Is that our job to interfere with nature? I mean, we, we've had these conversations on the show, but these are the quandaries we get into. I, I, I enjoy these types of conversations. But the point is, nature is harsh. It's why I always talk about that Instagram account. Nature is metal. I know not everybody enjoys it, but it's real life and it's what happens in real life and animals kill and eat other animals. And it's just it's, it's the way it works. And we try to wrap your mind around it. it's different as humans. We approach it differently to bring this 20 minute roundabout conversation back to where I was. I want to talk to David Robertson about his ethical perspective on converting to veganism. Do you use the word converting? Is that too heavy of a word? I think it's a conversion, isn't it? You could, his move it's work, toward it's his, workable, his adoption of vegan, like whatever, there you go. There right? You go. Yeah. And then continuing to trap and to run trap lines. And, and for, for a lot of people, Let's commit to bringing him back. Let's say like within six months, we'll bring him back on the show because I would like to have this conversation. I think he'd probably give us a really amazing answer, but I want to leave 20 minutes for mm. it. A lot of people have real problems with trap lines and snares, right? They're like a lot of people that may not have a problem with hunting may have a problem with snaring or trap lines, right? And well, animal because the animals suffering are there for a while. They're there for a while. Yeah. And then, and then we can really open up the conversation. I'm not comparing indigenous trapping to keeping your basement clean let me be very clear about that this is a completely different subject matter but we can talk about ethics on all sorts of fronts like people have mice in their basements whether you use snap traps or sticky traps but these are real this is real talk real conversation these are hard conversations to have i know some people will some people say i don't want mice in my basement i don't want mouse droppings of my family I'm not going to catch a mouse and release it outside. My family needs my, my family's safety and health is paramount, but I don't want an animal to suffer regardless of how small it is. 
We'll hear from people that catch house flies in mason jars and release them into the great outdoors. I know. Is that you, really? Yeah. A house. I mean, I'll release like a ladybug. Wasp fly. Wasp. Yeah. Come on, really? Yes. The other day, I was in the garage with my at my mom's place, and there was a wasp, and I had to be like, just time out. I gotta go, and I got the wasp out. Wow. Okay. I've always been like this, though. <laughs> like, since I was a little kid, just even going to get a Christmas tree, I always felt bad at the Christmas tree lot for all the trees. <laughs> we should note that on Monday, uh, people are people are maybe wondering about... So I just decide to change the subject <laughs> there like, because <laughs> you lose me at... Tre- no, you don't lose me at trees. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You know what really bugs me is... And, and, and the, the, the Christmas tree lots that they're like on blowout sale on December 24th. Right, the the people that have not, you you haven't got your tree, and you go out and they're half price, and then what happens to all the rest of them? They just they go in the dumpster, or maybe they're recycled, or I don't know, maybe they turn them into sawdust. I have no idea what they do with them, but but you know, as long as I, I have no problem with that, they're tree farms, they're they're planting them to be harvested, they're rolling them out, they're replanting. I have I have bigger problems with. Have we have we sent any of the photo? We have sent photos for what we're. Let's tee this up on Monday. So real talkers, Sam, can you you know what I'm talking about? That that image out of BC. Let's take a look here for those that are watching on on uh, YouTube. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, you've probably seen this already anyway. This is like gut wrenching. What are you laughing at? I don't. I don't expect you to be laughing at this photo. People are Sorry. outraged. Sorry, there's just someone just said that I am Phoebe Phoebe Buffet. Oh, is that from Friends? Yeah. Have you, is the Friends reunions on now? Everybody's yeah, talking about that. that's what's bringing it back. But have I you been watching? I haven't because it's on HBO Max. And okay. It's just like how many things do I have to buy? Lot, anyway. The answer is lots. Yeah. Yeah. The answer Sorry, is lots. I, so so trees. this take us into this though because this is the, people are saying that um, I mean when it comes to old growth this is a Sitka spruce is that correct? And this this truck uh, was photographed. We're, uh, tell us who we're talking to on Monday, Sarah. We're actually t- speaking with the person that took that first photo. It's the photo that started it all. And then uh, a reporter uh, got to see the photo. She's an artist, is the person that took the photo that lives on Vancouver Island. And uh, she took the photo, just thought she would share it on her Facebook. And then it blew up, obviously. It blew up. And it's, it's old growth. These are things that people have ne- like they could not believe that it was a cut down b on a truck yeah so they're like they're talking about th- this could be a thousand years old yeah and it was shocking to people and so we're going to get into that that's a story we're going to cover on monday we're going to we're going to be talking about supervised consumption next week we're going to be getting into a lot of stuff it feels like next week's shows are already looking fantastic um, we're going to talk about revenge bedtime procrastination this was a real talker that submitted this idea oh yeah this is, this is people like me yeah, uh, who that, stay up late and watch my octopus teacher. Yes, that start films at one in the morning yeah. on a school night and, and they yeah. just and they screw themselves over. Basically, we're going to take a look at that phenomenon and what it says about you. That's coming up on Monday. On Tuesday, we're going to talk to federal NDP leader Jackmeet Singh. We're talking to the federal leaders of all the parties, or at least let me say that the leaders of all the federal parties are invited to talk to us. And we hope that every one of them uh, takes the invitation that the prime minister accepted to come speak with us. Uh, we're going to be talking to uh, looking forward to Senator uh, Dr. Patty Labicane Benson coming up later in the week. Dr. Jody Carrington, um, just an absolute spitfire and, and just a brilliant mental health professional. A psychologist will be joining us. That's next Thursday, I think. Right. Coming up on the third. You so bet. it's, it's going to be a great week next week. And, and we're going to get into a whole bunch of stuff that that cedar tree thing. That's that's one that's got me thinking. Those are the ones that 
man oh man and people are people are chaining themselves to trees uh i say that metaphorically i don't know if they literally are but there's demonstrations going on right now there's huge demonstrations outside john horgan's office the premier of bc so this is something that a photo worth a thousand words this one might be worth a million and we'll talk to the woman that captured that that snap sarah's lined that up with inflation yeah i think we're definitely more than a thousand dollars huh Wait, what? What? You said a picture is worth a thousand. Oh, geez. With the, I see what you're saying. Wor- oh, oh shoot, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, no, you. Yeah, I messed it up. No, it's, a, it's I, a, I mean, flow. I mean, don't worry. You just steered the whole show into the ditch, <laughs> which we'll never recover from. Don't worry about that. But but other than that, everything's totally Oils, fine. No, what? let me let me return to the premise that you put together a great week next week. <laughs> Plus, it will continue to evolve as as more stories make news, obviously, uh, as mentioned, including supervised consumption, some stories out of two of Alberta's major cities there on that front. We'll take a look at that story across Canada as well. Power Ed right now is has launched this new micro course at powered.ca. We were telling you this about digital wellness 101. This is exactly what we're talking about. Sitting at one in the morning and doom scrolling on Twitter. Why are you on Instagram? I'm, I'm looking in. I'm treating the camera like a mirror right now. Why are you on Instagram at two in the morning? Go to bed. Digital wellness needs to be more of our focus. You know, the average person picks up their mobile device 58 times a day, 58 times a day. And for engaged folks like us, that might actually be low. What does digital wellness look like? Digital wellness 101 is a course that takes two to three hours. You can do it at your own pace on your own time on demand it's put out there by athabasca university just part of the power ed lineup the offerings that you can see online at powered.ca wanted to thank those of you we already have i think we have uh like of those we've approved i think we already have five or six submissions for positive reflections coming up on monday amazing i mean the, just the, the good news stories that you're sharing with us including some cat photos. I'm just going to be honest after our conversation yesterday about cats and dogs and the whole nine yards. Let the me whole just, nine lives, the mean. whole nine lives. I was, I was trying to decide if I wanted to, I, it's not definitely not the most divisive conversation we've had on the show, but it was, it was getting up there by the end and I was the one stoking the flame. So I take some responsibility. I got one email actually from somebody that was actually super serious that was like you were like your bias against cats was just so evident and i was like i was having fun man but it was like a real email like they were not happy so i just wrote back in dog jespo positive reflections is presented by kubi energy also not scripted i know you'll never believe that these are not scripted kubi energy has their team of certified installers certified by tesla in fact working right now across western canada which means that it doesn't matter if you're catching real talk, if you're downloading our podcast in Saskatchewan, Alberta, BC, they can help you find your sustainability solution, whether it's commercial, residential, or industrial. The team at kubienergy.ca is ready to rock and get you going green. We're so grateful as well for the support of the team at Local Waste. They love to talk trash. They want to fight to earn your business. And that means providing the resources in some circumstances to help you get out of your garbage contract. The one with that big company that doesn't even return your calls, the big company that's taking way more money than you should be paying because the bin is two thirds empty every time they dump it for you. That's not how local waste operates. Mikel, Lauren, Chris, and the team at localwaste.ca ready to earn your business today. We wrap up our broadcast week every Friday Thanks to the team at Local Waste by blowing off a little steam. It's a little something we like to call trash talk. 
All right. Lisa took me up on my challenge to send us a trash talk that would actually make us laugh. She says, I have the most annoying neighbor ever. He moved in over the fall. I can't quite pinpoint the exact time because he's actually been pretty well behaved up until six weeks ago. But now the entire neighborhood knows he's here from announcing he's up early in the morning to upsetting our dogs with his disruptive trips through the back alley. He's driving me crazy. I'm not proud to admit I find myself thinking about taking more and more drastic measures to put a stop to this disruptive behavior. What do you mean, Lisa? She says, my neighborhood used to be such a peaceful oasis. Now it's being ruined by a single individual. I'm putting you on notice, annoying neighbor. You and I are headed for a showdown, Mr. Squirrel. That from Lisa. All right. I know some of you are getting concerned about where Lisa was going with that. I'm sure she's going to trap it humanely and release it in the woods. Danielle says, a potentially controversial opinion for you, but you want to know what's really grinding my gears this week? The piped-in crowd noises that they play through the NHL broadcast. She says, I get that they're trying to make things a little bit more normal for viewers. Our live studio audience absolutely agrees with you, Danielle. She says, but it's distracting more than anything else. The cheers don't match the plays. It totally throws me off. She says, I'd much rather be able to have the players conversing with teammates, talking to opponents. I get that it may not be appropriate for younger viewers, but it would be such an interesting part of the game, right? Everybody agrees. Everybody agrees with Danielle. She says, my favorite all-time are the series that follow two teams to the Winter Classic. They take us mic'd up behind the scenes. She says, I think that would be great. And oh, by the way, before I sign off, says Danielle, one final controversial opinion for you. Go Leafs, go! Oh, yeah. No, the no, the live studio audience didn't like that one. Went one step too far. What about this one from Doreen that says, Jespo, I was going through past episodes, past shows, and I loved your most recent roundtable regarding the proposed Alberta curriculum, but I want to respectfully point out something that one of your guests touched on. She says the chair of Edmonton's public school board, uh, Ms. Estabrooks, Trish Estabrooks, she says what happened with the coal policy, she says the government changed its mind. They changed direction. We saw that with the coal policy. Doreen says the equivalent win for education would be if the government kept the poorly drafted contents the same, but convinced the public they'd fixed the problem. I hope that's not the win we get for education. She says there's this widespread belief the government's listening to us on coal. All they've done done is apologize and reinstate the policy while letting these coal leases continue ahead. They gave us a skewed survey. They appointed a so-called independent committee, but it doesn't even consider impact on water and land. It's nothing more than a delay game while companies do destructive exploratory work. The government refuses to acknowledge the real cost of open pit mining. It's important we do not give credit for listening when actions do not match words. Doreen says Albertans need to get even louder about serious issues we face and this one from greg who says i'm rather sick and tired of this whole ethical oil argument we keep hearing from politicians and pundits we don't produce as ethical oil as norway and yeah we're more ethical than saudi arabia but here's the real talk says greg we're ethical because of regulations politicians now are trying to deregulate they're trying to put our ethical product on a pedestal while trying to make the claim invalid for the future he says do you really think these politicians are 
buying ethically made t-shirts? You think they're looking for ethically sourced eggs for their omelets? And he says it's nothing more than a talking point. Companies don't care about ethical oil either. This is evident everywhere. He says if you want to talk about ethical oil, you better be supporting unions, getting your coffee from sustainable sources, and buying ethical produce. He says I'm tired of people using this bad faith argument signed an Albertan that genuinely gives a shit about ethically sourced products. Then I'm going to wrap with an impromptu ad-lib bit of trash talk myself based on the messages that you gave us. These were Twitter comments. These were messages emailed in. I asked Sarah to put some of them together. People are asking, Alberta will be open for Stampede. Oh, this one's from Larry. Will Dr. Dina Hinshaw be the Stampede Parade Marshal while Jason Kenny flips the pancakes? Well, at least half of that's going to happen. Says that while the health minister's over in the cowpoke vaccination clinic. Now Stampede goers, oh boy, can spread more than just their... Oh, I can't read that. I can't even... It's. Tr- I can't even read that. Even in trash talk, I can't read this. Hell or high fever, says Larry. I can't wait. And that's another edition of Trash Talk. The first ever censored email on the fly. Keeping it real. We'll talk to you again Monday, friends.